a bottle of power. <laughs> Powerade. <clears throat> There's enough power in this room to change Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> or at least blow the roof off of this church. <laughs> Did I say I'm Joe Hawk and that I'm a recovered alcoholic? First promise, first page, first edition, first printing. You either believe it or you don't. Most people that say they're recovering aren't. <laughs> first speaker I ever heard was from Texas, Jimmy Williams. He said you can stay sick in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous as long as you want. You'll have plenty of company. He said, or you can get well in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and you'll have plenty of company. You just got to choose the company you want to you hang with. I like movies. Matter of fact, if, when you live in Los Angeles for 10 years, sometimes you get a little confused between movies and AA meetings. It all kind of starts to blur, right? And I thought of two movies tonight. One for you older folks, The Godfather, Godfather One. And there was a famous conference of mob bosses called Appalachia. The other one's a little more current with, I think, uh, Robert De Niro and uh, Billy Crystal. It has a lot to do, the title has a lot to do with Alcoholics Anonymous. It's called Analyze This. <laughs> That joke could be perceived any way you like it. And they had a conference of mob bosses. And I was thinking, you know, that's kind of like what it's like here tonight. We have representatives from the Bronx, the Godfather, Sydney, and the Godmother, Loretta. She's the boss. He knows it. Most guys don't. <clears throat> we have representatives from Staten Island, New Jersey, and there's an interesting thing going on. Every one of you. Anybody here tonight's not interested in the work in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous? Maybe you will be. You're welcome. You are welcome among people that do the work. But we're not always welcome among people that don't do the work. <clears throat> and they're not always welcome among us. It took us a long time in Santa Monica and a lot of ridicule. They've been doing it now at this home group in Santa Monica for 15 years. I got sober. In Texas, we give our sobriety date. It's about bragging. <laughs> or, if you don't have much time, it's about letting everybody feel sorry for you in the room. <laughs> My sobriety date, I was given this gift, August 17th, 1982, and for that I am very grateful. And I express that gratitude through action. Because I've had times where, and I was not on hiatus for five years, let me tell you. <laughs> There's drums in India. I was just at spiritual boot camp because I'd worn myself a lot, out a little bit with self-indulgence in the fellowship and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, doing what you all told me to do to stay sober. But I found out something about that too. I found out, you know, 
You know, you, sometimes speakers say, I don't have much to share tonight, and you go, oh, damn. <laughs> We're in for it, right? Some speakers say, I'm not going to tell you much about my drunk log. And you go, holy shit. <laughs> Fifty-five minutes later, your old lady leans over to you and says, I think I want him to get sober more than his own family did. Right? <laughs> I got a lot to say. I'm bubbling over, you know? I've been saving it up. You know? People that do the work in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous make fun of people that don't do what's in the big book. But if, but if anybody in the room's ever written inventory about those motherfuckers that don't have to do what's in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, you probably saw something. You're pissed at them because you have to and they don't. <laughs> Some of them get better and better and better. And you're six, I made it six months in the grace of God and in Los Angeles, California, where I moved a few years later. One of the big slogans in South Central was, the grace of God is sufficient. Not for me. A lady in our group once said, grace lasts only as long as ignorance, but when you see some truth, you need some power to do something with the truth you've seen. And I thought, damn. Some men in Alcoholics Anonymous, myself included, miss a whole facet of life from discounting women in Alcoholics Anonymous that you can learn about half of yourself. You know, don't tell one of these guys, where's my buddy? Where, where is he? Don't tell some of these guys from Brooklyn or Staten Island that within every beam there's male and female. You think I had trouble getting in touch with my inner child? I didn't ever have no trouble getting in touch with my inner child. I've been desperately seeking for an inner adult. <laughs> and when I've gotten a glimpse of him, I don't like him. I don't want to be an adult. <laughs> but something happens when you get some power in your life. You know, lack of power aid is not my dilemma. <laughs> There's a group in San Francisco of friends of ours who call themselves the Lapwads. Now, what the hell's a Lapwad? I said, what the hell's a Lapwad? They said, we call ourselves lack of power is a dilemma. I said, you all keep doing the work, you're going to have to change your name to Hopwad. She said, why? I said, because having power is a fucking dilemma, too. <laughs> Nelson Mandela wrote a very, very powerful poem when he was 26 years in a prison cell. And he said in that poem, I can't quote it, but he said most people are more afraid of real power and light than they are of remaining irresponsible, powerless, and in the darkness. And you can stay sick as long as you want. Now, here's how powerful my ego is. And I don't want to fuck anybody up, but you can use the work to, to avoid doing the work. Let me say that again. You can use the work in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous to avoid doing the work in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. How does that look? One through nine and a half. <laughs> Telling people you've had a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. You haven't had a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. You've had an amazing spiritual awakening as a result of one through nine and a half. And then you've rested on your laurels. And those laurels start to prick your ass, right? They go from comfort to pain. And then you even like that because we're used to that too. That's just back to a normal condition. 
It was a little scarier when you were comfortable and had wisdom power. And then you go, got to get in another workshop. They're doing another workshop, one through nine and three quarters. <laughs> oh, 10, 11, and 12, have some fun, do something with some power, become effective. I've even seen people use 12 to avoid nine. I might not be finishing the men's, but I'm working with a lot of people. You know, why are you working with a lot of people? Because uh, 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 you're supposed to carry the message to stay sober. If you working with people can keep you sober, then there must be something you can do to keep yourself sober. And there must be a first step reservation. And it took some work to see that. I went to a guy one time, a scary guy, he moved to L.A. from... I should back up just a second. I drank enough alcohol to need to do the work. <laughs> what does the drama have to do with it? Ten treatment centers, we've all seen people go to treatment a lot more than ten times who are not alcoholics. Grew up rich, grew up poor, abused, not abused, white, black, from Harlem, Bedford, wherever you're from. Doesn't matter. Thanks so much for watching this week. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Better. As long as and then you got this little if only story. If only I hadn't grown up in that family. We hear a lot about the yet, you know, and they talk about the yet in California. I haven't done that yet. <laughs> but have you ever heard about the if only? If only my daddy hadn't been 60 when I was born. By the time I was 10, he was 70. That used to cause me great pain in therapy. Now that I've woken up a little bit, it gives me a tremendous amount of hope for at least the next 10 years of my life. I've been places where you have to have actually explain that joke. Because I'd like to be doing what my dad was doing when I'm 60 years old, right? Doesn't take a brain size to figure that out. Uh, unfortunately. Fortunately, I'm following in my father's footsteps. I've been a little out of shape for the last three years, but that's okay. That's another story. So what does it matter what kind of family I grew up in? You got this little if only stuff. If only I hadn't gone to that school with those guys. If only they hadn't sent me to the East Coast. I got strong connections here in the city. Power's increasing. <laughs> Starting to glow. Stand away from the speaker. Yeah. I got a big connection with this area. Ninth grade, they sent me from Battle Creek, Michigan. Didn't know what to do with me. Because I had a profound spiritual awakening. They thought the boys, the, the boys' behavior just changed. If you listen to a real alcoholic talk about his first drunk, and you listen to a real alcoholic talk about his last drunk, they're both spiritual awakenings. One wakes you up like you've never been woken up, and one wakes you up like you've never been woken up. What's the difference between the awakening that you had the first time alcohol worked? You listen to a real alcoholic get in touch with the first time it worked. Doesn't mean it's the first time you drank, the first time it worked. And every promise halfway through the ninth step came true. Not the eleventh step promise. We have groups all around this country who think there's only twelve promises. They'll call them the Twelve Promises of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
Halfway through the ninth step, you'll be amazed. I'm sitting in the back. I'll never get those promises because I ain't never fucking making it through halfway through the ninth step. Halfway through the ninth step is going to mean going all around the country. I lived in a lot of places. The me that comes to one is not the me that gets to nine. So a guy said to Mark Houston one time, because Mark talked about getting current. I wish there was a better word. I've been looking for a better word for a long time. Current. That place you used to dream about. If I could just start again. If I could just start over. With, just, with some of these people. If we could just start from ground zero, that would be a big improvement. Mark was talking about getting current. There is a better word for it. Entering the world of the spirit. And it ain't halfway through nine. It's on the other side of your first set of amends when you're current. Not that you haven't had an amazing spiritual awakening. Promises you that. Way before nine. After five, you've had some spiritual ideas. Now you've begun to have a spiritual awakening. Halfway through nine, some amazing promises. But then it says you enter the world of the spirit. <clears throat> that day from when your head to your heart goes the realization, I don't know anybody. I got some that'll be ongoing, maybe the rest of my life, but I've gone to everybody I possibly could. <clears throat> you can't get yourself to that place from step one. So here I was, this kid, took a drink, age 12, woke up. I wasn't quiet, withdrawn, and silent anymore. I could say what I wanted. I could dance with the little girls across the room. Some power came into my life. And you listen to a real alcoholic talk about his first drunk when it first worked. And they're not just saying, oh, it sounded like it was going to be fun. I saw some people doing it. They're going to talk about connecting to something within themselves that they felt disconnected from once they look back on it. They're going to fit every description of untreated alcoholism on page 52 before they ever took a drink. Restless, irritable, discontent, didn't fit, felt like an alien from another planet, trouble with personal relationships, <clears throat> couldn't control my emotions. And anybody, if you're new here, and you were damaged like I was from drugs and alcohol, and you're able to be here in the grace of God, thank God for every drop you ever drank. Don't hate the shit that brought you here. And I don't want to debate, but I believe this. Maybe God used alcohol and drugs to bring you back to Him. <clears throat> well, who's brought more people to God than the devil? Virtue? <laughs> Happiness? <laughs> Money? No. Crack. <laughs> I, heard, I heard this the other day. <laughs> I thought it was funnier now. Now, I don't want to say anybody in this room is a crack addict, but a lot of you all look crackish. That's a funny shit. Crackish. Thank God for every drop I ever drank. And you know the ones that get to say that? We think we're the fortunate ones. God, we're the chosen ones to be in Alcoholics Anonymous. A lot of our friends got to get free. They paid their ticket. They got to go. We're still paying our ticket. We got to be right here suffering. Suffering. The still suffering. And sometimes you're suffering because you can't get still. And that's why you're still suffering. Because you can't get still. My sponsor always said, 
the goal is to get in touch with a quiet, still voice within, and you're never going to hear it if there's loud noises from the past. <clears throat> I know about being there. <clears throat> I took a drink I had in the waking. They didn't know what to do with me. They sent me to the East Coast. Uh, fortunately for me, unfortunately for everybody else, it was one of the number one drug schools in the East Coast outside of Worcester, Mass. Uh, Timothy Leary and Ram Dass, Richard Alfred, had one of their guys there making LSD using the schools as a front. And I went from Boone's Farm Apple Wine, <laughs> kid drinking, weekend kid drinking, loved it, to LSD 25 in a four month period at age 12. <laughs> Real LSD. After five years of that, we called it L.S. Chicken. <laughs> yeah. He said, his brother said to me one night at his meeting in Dallas, I shared something. His brother looked at me and his brother said, I, I'd like to have you sit right across. They sit in this big room reading a book to these people that are just on fire. Him and this old boy, his brother and this old boy. And his brother said, I'd like to see you sitting right across from me because I want to look at you. And I shared some one night, and his brother said, I don't know what drugs you were doing in high school, but I wish I would have had some. <laughs> I used to give his brother hell every week. Because <clears throat> we love each other. And how can people that do the work in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous be experiencing disunity? How can you continue doing the work and get further away from the people that brought you to it? How can you be gossiping about them and them of gossiping about you and your gossiping about them? That's why we've come together here tonight. We've got the five heads of the five families with the New York Posse together. Appalachia 2. Big book Appalachia 2. That should be the name of the Posse. Please raid this motherfucker. Take a lot of us to jail. Just like in the movie, huh? You're under arrest for having too much power in your life. We don't like people. A lot of you know what they do with people in America that get free. They killed every one of our heroes, white or black. They kill people that get free. Same in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because there's a lot of people that want to kill you. They want you dead because they want to stay sick. They want to have plenty of company. And you're messing up their company. You're messing up their comfort. You're messing up the grace of God. But I'll tell you what I found out about my judgment of people that don't have to do the work. Not only was I pissed off that they don't have to, and I do, I was taken to a place where I loved doing the work, and I saw that my judgments about people that don't have to was about my own agnosticism, because I believed God was working in my life, but I didn't believe God was working in Alcoholics Anonymous the way I thought he should. Because you know what? We're surrounded by people in Alcoholics Anonymous. God bless them. They don't have to do the work. Let them be. <laughs> be there for the guys that need to. And carry the message to everybody. <clears throat> it ain't about ragging on the fellowship. It's about love and service. It's about love and service. <clears throat> but I remember a man that was there in a room similar to this on a Friday night in 1982, and his name was Don Pritz. His name is Don Pritz. He didn't want to be there that night. He didn't go to that treatment center because those people might or might not have been alcoholic. He told me he went to that treatment center because he's alcoholic. That's why we be in service. Because we're alcoholic, not what they're doing. We should be in the places we disagree with their philosophy more than any other place on the planet. Sorted spot. 
I've been in sordid spots in Beverly Hills, much more sordid than my friend Sydney's place in, in the Bronx. Because sordid ain't how it looks. Sordid is whether there's any life there or not. <clears throat> there's meetings in South Central Los Angeles I love to speak at because they testify. And if they like it, you know it. And if they don't like it, you know it. And that's what I like about New Yorkers. Because with North, New Yorkers, it's either fuck you or I love you. There ain't nothing in between. <laughs> Los Angeles is like, yeah, you're cool. <laughs> Guy said to me tonight, he said, you're not from L.A. I never fit there. And I was just thinking about it the other day. My best friends in Los Angeles are all from New York. <laughs> Jaime and Shelley, God bless them. Got sober under the Brighton Beach boardwalk. Couldn't find the message. Given the grace of God, they made it for a year. They'd start going to meetings, Houston and Varick, and we're talking 15 years ago. They hear shit like one step a year. Imagine 12 years before you could be in the 12th step. When do you get to carry the message? When you're 12? I wish Bill would have believed that. We wouldn't be here. Bob would have been fucked, right? Let me get back to you, Bob. I'll, I'll get back to you in about 11 years. I got to stay in New York for 11 years. I'll be out there when I'm 12. Right? Didn't even have a book. Ain't about the book. Ain't about the book. I've worshipped the book. I heard in Denver when I got sober, read the book, go to meetings, work the steps, get a sponsor. My mind said, then those are the things that will keep me sober. Cause you, but you know what I failed to realize? I already was. Six months later, I've seen people do the book better, work the steps, had better sponsors, spend more time with them, do the book inside out, went to ten times more meetings than me, drink again. Hit bottom with the second half of step one. Heard a lady, heard a lady use a phrase the other day, I can't take the credit, I haven't said it more than three times, I just heard it the other day. A sister from L.A. who's in Dallas got sober in our group in Santa Monica. She said, you know what happened? I got stuck on the dash. <laughs> And you can get stuck on the dash going forward, but you can get stuck on the dash going backward. I'll tell you what that means. Ask the guy tonight at dinner. Fellow brother, mad dog. I know he's a mad dog. He's forgotten. I said to him, where are you at? He said, I got some amends left. But my life's great. I said, those amends have anything to do with you drinking again? Nope. He's stuck on the dash going backwards because it was about the unmanageability of his life. He got through nine and a half. His life got better. And it stopped because it wasn't about being powerless over alcohol anymore. Anybody in amends right now for the first time, seventh time, fourth time, third time, I'm going to give you prayers. going to fuck your head up. <laughs> Here's the prayer. Close your ears if you don't want to hear it, because once you hear it, it's going to fuck you up whether you say the prayer or not. <laughs> Here's the prayer. Dear God, please show me if these unfinished amends have anything to do with whether I drink again or not. Amen. Because <clears throat> you know what happens? The further away you get from one, the further away you get from one. And you know, I actually have a mind that says this. Step one's only true when you're in it. You know, when you're formally, when you're going with a sponsor from the title page, three parts of the program, you know. 
doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there's a solution, more about alcoholism. The first step's true. But now you've done some work. And now you don't really have a drinking problem anymore. You have living problems that amends are going to straighten out. And amends straighten them out. And everything on 52 starts to change. And you're doing 10 and 11 out of virtue. There ain't no desperation anymore. Ah, if I do it in the morning, I do it. If I don't, I don't. Because they told me in my home group, don't beat yourself up. Well, I'll tell you what. If you're not beating yourself up, alcohol will beat you the fuck up. Excuse my language. <laughs> I just have to see my friend Sydney, and something happens. Because <clears throat> this ain't a room full of people who had a crack in the pool today, or a flat tire on the way getting here. Most of the people in this room, even if you're still debating, it's probably about life and death. And I like to be in rooms with people where it's about life and death. But sometimes people like me that think it's, that it was about life and death, it's not about life and death anymore. It's about life and life, a great life. And what happens when you get free of the fear of dying? I, was, I wasn't afraid when you told me when I was new to drink again is to die. You know why I'm not, I'm not afraid of that? I've done it on the streets. I grew up halfway between Detroit and Chicago. I've been in the penitentiary. When safe drivers save for not answering their phone while driving, they feel like a big deal. Sorry about that. Ice? Even if they forgot. For me to drink is to die might be a hopeful promise of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know what scared me though? You might go on living a long time feeling the way you're feeling this long sober, dying an alcoholic death. Because an alcoholic death usually takes a long time. <clears throat> and I've had to be reminded of that from time to time. And what do you need to be reminded of that? You need to be around people that care more about whether you live or die than your sensitive alcoholic feelings and how what they might say might make you feel. There's some stuff you got to quit caring about, but there's some stuff you got to start caring about. you got to quit caring about what anybody thinks about what you have to say. And you think that was easy speaking around the country when I thought I was a controversial big-time speaker? Because you know what? I still thought I could help alcoholics. And you know what? I don't look for people I can help anymore. Because you know what you end up with when you look for people you can help? You end up with people that a human power can help. You know who I look for? People that nobody can help, and I point into that which can. Because when I went to Don and I said, I thought you told me, reading the book, working the steps, getting a sponsor, and going to meetings is what would keep me sober. He said, no, no, no. We hoped all those things would get you in touch with something that already is keeping you sober. That's what I forget. <clears throat> I'm not going to talk if you're passing the basket. She comes from the right church, though. You pass the basket at the right time. <laughs> Before they get pissed off. Because the next speaker, the next speaker is not as nice as I am. I'm a nice guy. <laughs> so you're 15 years sober. You're in Santa Monica, California. You've been five years in Denver. A lot of work with some great people. My heroes are still in Denver. Why it's in Denver, I don't know. We probably all feel about that way where we got sober. But there are some giants in Alcoholics Anonymous around this country. 
I was five years in Denver, moved to L.A. I was there 10 years. So right around 12 or 13, I've been there eight or nine years. A guy moves from LA, from Cal, from Denver to Los Angeles. And of course, he's the guy that I have to go to to go through the work. He's the only one that can take Joe Hawk through the work. Man, that's fucked up, isn't it? <laughs> I run down there. He says, I remember you from our group in Denver. You've been on some of our retreats. He says, you want to do the work? I said, yeah. He said, why? I asked everybody I work with that question. Is this work what you want to do? Are you willing to go to any length? Why do you want to do the work? And why the fuck with me? Because by the time they leave my house, that's what I'm asking myself. Why me? Because right? I don't get healthy, well-adjusted people in Alcoholics Anonymous. You're looking for healthy, well-adjusted people in Alcoholics Anonymous? Give up. Even in a recovered state, we're some fucked up people, man. We don't fit out there in the normal world. What do you mean you had to do this, this, and this to get some power in your life? I just walked into church, heard a great sermon, realized when I do this, this, and this, this happens. I started doing it in my life, and I just quit doing it. What's wrong with you? I don't know. Lack of power, right? Then you get some power, and you're still not like other people. But you got to live out there in the world, in it, but not of it. Because we get to live from another place. We get to live as members of the fellowship of the Spirit, not just members who have experienced the Spirit of the fellowship. That's why they call that. The, the big book talks about two fellowships. And isn't it interesting? One at the beginning of the work. Some of us walked into our first meeting. Some of us had a major awakening just saying, my name is Joe and I'm an alcoholic. That can be an amazing experience. Feeling people that share in a common problem. And then they tell you stuff to build up your ego. Right away they build up your ego. Maybe we need that when we're new. We need some ease and comfort. And they start off by telling you, you're the most important person in the room. You go, well, finally I'm in a room where they realize my importance. <laughs> but imagine if the room was just filled with newcomers who share in a common problem. The county jail would have worked for every one of us the first time we went. If all you need is a room full of people who share in a common problem, okay, newcomers might be the, the blood of Alcoholics Anonymous, but you know, blood needs a heart to run through, and that's the people that shared with us who didn't want to be there on a Friday night, who didn't want to be in that treatment center, who didn't agree with their philosophy, who didn't care who was alcoholic or who wasn't, or who was doing the work and who wasn't. He was there to save his own ass because he was alcoholic. And if you think I'm still doing this out of virtue, or some great enlightenment from India, or that I transgressed alcoholism, you're mistaken. Suffering never ends, but freedom doesn't either, and they're always both right there. It's just layer after layer after layer. And you can focus on the suffering, or you can focus on the spirit of the universe that is there every single moment. It ain't going nowhere. And that's a dilemma. That ain't always frolicking off to God with your sponsor down the rosy red path. The spiritual path can be lonely in Alcoholics Anonymous. Try to find as many people as you can in this area that have gotten current with every amendment they're consciously aware of. Don't ask them have they been through the steps. A lot of people will tell you, I've been meeting some recently. 
How many times have you been through the steps? Three? Really? Cool. Let's hang out. Have another conversation. You still got some amends from your first time through? Yeah. You still got some amends from your second time through? Yeah. Then why are you telling people you've been through the steps three times when all you've done, you've never completed eight or nine? Would you tell people you've been through the steps if you didn't finish four? Would you tell people you've been through the steps if you hadn't finished your fifth step? No. Then why do you tell people you've been through the steps when you haven't finished the last word in eight or nine? But you've had a major awakening. You've had a major awakening. Your life has taken off. Everything from page 52 has changed. But you got lost going backwards on the dash because the amends don't have shit all to do with alcohol and drugs anymore. So you just say, dear God, please show me if these unfinished amends have anything to do with whether I drink again or not. And you might get reminded that nine is connected to the first half of step one. And your reason to do 10 and 11 ain't about virtue or because you become a wonderful saint. It's because you're powerless over alcohol and drugs. <clears throat> with a manageable life, with power in your life, with responsibility, don't you wish sometimes when you're alone after a meeting sometimes and you've done a lot of work in AA that you could just go back to being ignorant and not knowing some of that shit? You know, just kind of glide through AA with the grace of God. Today I have a choice. I don't know what you big book Nazis. Imagine what would be in somebody's heart. Imagine what would have to be in, in some, a lot of you in this room know what I mean. Imagine what would have to be in somebody's heart to use the word Nazi about another member of the program that you're in that saved them too, maybe. Or maybe they're just the type one. The big book describes four types. Had a major awakening in his brother's group this year reading the chapter to the wise. Why do I need to read the chapter to the wise? I've never had one. <laughs> That's like thinking you've been through the steps a few times. You don't need to read the chapter to the agnostic again, because how could you have current agnosticism? You were agnostic once, and it ain't never going to happen again, because you chose God as everything. But see, the fucked up thing about choosing God as everything, you're the one going to the well with the container. Your conception of everything this time. Is your conception of everything this time the conception you had 19 years ago? Are you operating in the world of spirit from an inventory from 20 years ago? I can barely operate in the world today from an inventory from two years ago, doing 10 and 11, studying with the Dalai Lama, with a great teacher in a place where there was nothing but time. I submit myself to a person that I respect, who's had a spiritual awakening, deeper and deeper and deeper, who's a mad dog. He's a type four that needs to do type four work. <clears throat> type four people can't get by on type two work. I go to a man who's a type four, but he does type four work. He's been on the other side of amends many times. And I know I'm not going to him, and he knows I'm not coming to him. And we know we're not going to a process either, because we've gotten free of worshiping the person we go to. That's what that's cool about that. We get free of worshiping the person we go to, and we get free of the process that we used to worship too, because it's about going to a deeper relationship with God. He gave me some questions. I've been in a set-aside prayer longer this time, and the first three steps, than any time I've ever been through the work in 20 years, and saw, you don't have to be fucked up. And got free of a major pattern. 
that I want to talk about for a minute. Because for 15 years in Alcoholics Anonymous, I suffered from a belief that goes like this. If it feels good, it's good. And if it feels bad, it's bad. So anything that makes me feel bad, it could actually possibly be the devil as a matter of fact. <laughs> anything that makes me feel bad, I'm going to stay away from and became so good at 10 and 11 that I was just going around stuff rather than through it because I have a mind that says you cannot be in pain, fear, resentment, depression, emotional pain, physical pain, and at peace at the same time. So if you're in pain, you got to do whatever you need to do to get back to comfort. And a man took 30 of us on a retreat. A scary guy. This guy this guy said, I've been coming to this group for six years. I know what you bastards want. You want me to do all the work this weekend, and I'm not gonna. Gave a one hour talk on worshiping comfort, thinking that it's God. Sent us back to our rooms to write an assignment. How many of my attitudes, beliefs, and actions have to do with the idea that if it feels good, it's good, and if it feels bad, it's bad? I went back to my room, I wrote some stuff, read it to him the next day. He looked at me and said, Hawk, I've known you for 13 years. You've been a part of my group. You've been on some of our retreats. You've been out here. You've been working with others. I got one question for you. I said, what? He said, what are you getting ready for? I said, what? He said, everything you read to me was about, well, maybe when I'm, or maybe when I have this much, or maybe after this next relationship, or maybe after the next retreat, then I'll, he said, what are you getting ready for? <clears throat> and some whole stuff broke open in my life. I believe in having spiritual teachers. You know why? It might not be true in this area. Like I said, I don't want to say anybody in this room is a crack addict. You might look crackish, And I don't want to say anybody in this room is a real alcoholic. But a lot of you look to, look to be alcoholic. And you know what? It is really hard to find out about growing spiritually in Alcoholics Anonymous. I hate to say it. You know why? Because those that are free will tell you to go have your own experience and be taken where your heart takes you. They won't do it for you because they're free. They're not going to say, pick this teacher and this book and this tradition. They're going to say, your heart will guide you. And those that aren't free are going to say, meditation is about listening, prayer is about talking. It's about as far as it's going to go. And I no longer see the spiritual life inside of AA separate from the spiritual life outside of AA because all I got anymore is a life. That's like a couple. I don't want to rag on any married couples. And I believe it's good to have whatever group you want to go to. But imagine this. The person in your life you say you love the most. You've made a commitment to spend the rest of your life together, but you keep your program separate. Now, ain't that fucked up? With the most important person in your life, you're going to keep the most important thing in your life and the most important relationship you both have in your life separate. You bring God into your marriage or it ain't got no hope. You bring your you know what I would love to have one day, and I've seen it in our group in Santa Monica, I would love to have a mate that I would ask if we could go through the work together. People have done it. Imagine reading inventory to your wife. Can't do that! <laughs> now let me get that straight. 
the most important person in my life that I want to spend the rest of my life with and share the spiritual journey with the most, relation, most important relationship we both have, which is with God, we're not going to share it. Because I can't read that stuff to her. That's why you keep fucking her over and you keep having to make amends because you're keeping that stuff from her. And you know what? Sometimes you got to get honest with people that are close in your life before you make amends and let the chips fall. I've had to do it. Not with distant people, not with vague relationships. I've had to go to some of the closest people in my life and say, I've lied to you about this. I've lied to you about this. I didn't tell you about this. I'll be back when you're ready to see me to make amends because that's the truth. There it is. That ain't easy. You're going to hide behind amends and say, well, my sponsor told me I can't tell you this. My sponsor told me I can't tell the most important person in my life this. My home group told me I can't tell her this. Imagine a sponsor editing your amends list. Every amends your sponsor has told you not to make is another piece of freedom they're taking you away from to help you stay sick, sick and dependent and stuck on them because they love collecting babies. That's what they call them in California. I never did. I got friends. Who, who gets help more, the sponsor or the sponsee? Anybody that's worked with people, answer that. If you haven't worked with people, or you're coming to this thing this weekend, and you're expecting Mark and I to do the same thing from 15 years ago, you're in big fucking trouble. Because <laughs> we don't care anymore. We care about whether you live or die, but not about being popular. We weren't popular when we were trying to be popular. Welcome. You want to get free? How free do you want to be? My sponsor told me I can't go back to the five major female relationships in my life. He might as well have given you a razor blade because they're probably the five most important amends that you owe. I heard a thing the other night. A guy said, I never make amends without going to my sponsor first. John Fritz, he told me to pray first, and if I was confused, then maybe we would talk. But you always pointed me to God. That's all we are. That's all we can be. Pointers. That's all we are. Pointers. They call you, go to God. They call you, it ain't going to come from me. I can't manage my own life. I need God. Go to God. Call God. Pray. Pray about it. Shut up. Mark does some shit where he'll put a motherfucker on a timer. Right? Hello? Yes, you got two and a half minutes. Ready? Go. Time's up. Mike Lawrence is an obsessive compulsive. Anybody ever had an email from Mike Lawrence? He was emailing people in Buffalo, Philadelphia, Baltimore, would be just our house. I know he's alcoholic. I know he's alcoholic. He's a mad dog. Maybe next time you'll reply to him. Don't reply. It's a devil machine. i got to see you face to face. I'm not sitting in front of one of those things. Click. That's all I can do. Turn it on, turn it off. Delete. Thank you. I put things like this. Give me a call, or I'd like to see you. Oh, that leads me to what I really wanted to talk about. Everyone in this room should write a letter to GSO, General Service Conference, or an email at least. Because you know what? They really made a big mistake. 
and they made a big mistake for the first time since they were able to change the book since 1976. They made a, a, a big mistake that some people haven't noticed yet on the paper cover. You know why? Because we get the paper cover, we crumble it up, throw it away, because we're more ashamed of being sober than we were of being drunk. And anybody that breaks your anonymity has made you feel shame because you're more ashamed of being sober than you were ashamed of being drunk. Anonymity, you know what Dr. Bob said? It's as harmful not to use your last name here in the fellowship as it is to use your name out in the public at the level of press, radio, and TV. But you know what they did on the paper cover? You know how I used to say, and I didn't see it for a long time, I used to say in one of those paragraphs, the first 164 pages is the AA message. Man, that would help a lot of people that want to debate what's the message. You go to a service conference, they're talking about trinkets, posters, badges, this. You ask one question, what was Bill Wilson's definition of service? Anything that makes carrying the message possible. And he asked one simple question, the whole room will go into an uproar. What's the message? Whoa! Just don't drink no matter what? <clears throat> it told us right on the paper cover until two years ago, whenever the fourth edition came out. It said, page 1 through 164 is the AA message. You know what it says now in the fourth edition? Page 1 through 164 had been the basis for many of you poor alcoholics, <laughs> they didn't say poor alcoholics, but they say it had been the basis for many alcoholics. And the way the attitude, the way it sounds is, they might as well have said those poor ones that have to do what's in this book. So they don't even say 1 through 164 is the message anymore. Then they said another fucked up thing in the forward of the fourth edition. Modem to modem, face to face, a meeting online is the same as your home group here tonight. Let me tell you this. I'm going to go online and say, hi, my name's Susie. I'm 19 years old. I need a meeting. Anybody want to help me? <laughs> what am I going to say? My name's Joe. I'm 20 years sober. I'm a fat old guy. Smoke cigarettes. And I need some attention because I'm 20 years sober and I'm dying of untreated alcoholism because I can't get myself to a meeting. Fuck that. They should have said, it could help you get in touch with us. It might be helpful if you're out of the country. It might be helpful if you're a loner or an internationalist, but I'm telling you, I can sit in this room and I don't know a lot of you. It's nice to have some friends here tonight. It's nice to have a couple guys at my side that I know if anybody rushes the stage, I'm going to be backed up. Because it could be any one of you. Especially the ones that know me. He said some shit at the beginning about if you know them, that's why you're here. Shit. In Los Angeles, there are people that know me that don't go because I'm going to be there. Because right? I'll ask them questions. Our group asks each other questions in the meeting, out of the meeting, and after the meeting for 15 years. Questions are a part of our format. Oh, can't ask questions in an AA meeting. You ever walk into a meeting with one of your best friends? And the moment you walk through the door, the friendship is like, Hi, Chris. How are you? Oh, hi, Joe. After the meeting, it's like, Little motherfucker. <laughs> and in the meeting, you can't talk. You can't say nothing to each other. So in Santa Monica, we ask each other questions. <clears throat> you do the work. You have, a, you have a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. Not a result of one through nine and a half. Nine and three quarters. Nine and three eighths. Don't use 12 to keep from doing the work. Don't use going back to one to keep from living some periods of time in love. 
in 10, 11, and 12, dancing and having fun, get on the other side of your amends. Because if you're alcoholic or addict, they're directly connected with you drinking and using again, even if it doesn't feel that way, because sober, don't let ease and comfort fool you. A lot of people have gone out behind ease and comfort, and a lot of people have gone out behind pain, and a lot of people have gone on not feeling much at all. Because there's a lot of you in this room tonight with reservations that a human power in the form of a pill is going to treat what you suffer from. Some of you need it. Some of you need a drink. But some of you need to do the work and get free and find out if it was untreated alcoholism or some other disease that needs to be treated. Take the treatment. Take the treatment. Don't debate. Don't come to this thing this weekend if you're coming to tell us about experience you haven't had. We ain't going for opinions. We're going to share experience. This is what it's like. Tell them when you're suffering when you're 15. Tell them when you're suffering when you're 20. Go to somebody when you're 20 with somebody who's hot in your group. The ones that are hot are the ones that aren't telling you they're hot. The ones that are telling you they're hot, don't go to them. Because everybody's going to them. Because they got to go to somebody who's hot. And I'm hot. And I'm going to sit down now. But... deceive the deceivers. Yeah. You'll never deceive a deceiver in AA. And here's how it goes. New guy in the neighborhood. Just moved into Staten Island. At Tommy Bradshaw's house. He walks down the street to the neighborhood bar. Just to have a 7-up. Guy comes wobbling out. Half drunk. Gets in an imaginary car, starts an imaginary engine, and zooms off. The guy thinks it's a little strange, goes in, has a 7-up. Next night, same thing. He's going in, this drunk's coming out. The newcomer in the neighborhood, the newcomer, the newcomer in the neighborhood says to the bartender, who's that guy who goes out of the bar, gets an imaginary car, starts an imaginary engine, and drives off? He said, oh, he's here every day. He'll drive around in that imaginary car all night, come back when we open, stay all night, and drive off in his imaginary car the next night. He said, why don't you tell him the truth? Why don't you tell him the truth? He said, are you fucking kidding me? He pays me a hundred bucks a month to keep his car clean. <laughs> And that, my friends, was Joe H., AA speaker on YouTube, The Depth and Weight of the Program. This recording was recorded in 2002. Thank you very much to those who share it, and thank you very much, everyone, for listening. God bless you. I'll not only guarantee a relationship with a woman, I'll guarantee a relationship with men and women you could never believe. And I'll give you a bonus on top of that. I'll guarantee you a relationship with Almighty God that you could never dream of. I said, I don't believe that. He said, isn't that wonderful? You don't have to. I said, what do you mean? It's the action. I said, I've already heard that. <laughs> he said, you're still married to what's your name? I said, yes, legally, but not really. So I've been praying for somebody to sleep with and nobody will. 
He said, okay, we'll practice on her. I said, you don't know. You've got to become different to live with anybody and live with other people, so we'll just start and practice with her. You're never going to tell her what's wrong with her ever again. I said, who's going to tell her? <laughs> he said, I don't know, but you're not. And you're never going to do anything to get Alamon, friends, children, or anything to work her around to get her to do what you want her to do. I said, never. He said, never. And you're going to pray for it. I said, no, I'm not. You pray for it. He said, now I want you to learn this prayer because you're going to say it for the rest of your days about all different relationships. Say this prayer and learn it. And you may have said it a hundred times a day in the beginning. God, thy will be done for her as well as for me. Take our relationship. Let it become what you want it to be and show me the truth. I said, I do not want God's will to be done for her as well as for me. He said, remember, what you want has nothing to do with it. So I started that prayer and said that all day long, every day. Then about two or three months later, that old sex, love, lust thing surfaced, and I didn't even know I had it. Now I knew what it was and I had it. Could not get rid of it. Told the sponsor over and over and over again, every day, every day, and God would not remove it. So I told the group. One of the girls said, you're not supposed to tell that in the group. So I went over and told another group. And one of them snitched on me. You know, we don't gossip here. We're just concerned. <clears throat> so he said, listen, we're, usually when you stop acting on any defect of character, God will transform your mind just like he did the alcohol and the drugs, and he'll transform your mind and remove it. That's not happening to you. Evidently, this is different. Once your name's gone back to the valley, you go over there, lock yourself in that apartment, and you and God some way deal with this thing. I went out and prayed and prayed and cried and cussed all day long at about 11, 12 o'clock at night and went to sleep. Next morning, that thing was gone. I thought, God, they were so smart, I didn't even tell them. Finally, after the fourth meeting, we were over eating ice cream, and I said, well, I guess I might as well tell you all this. Oh, we knew it the first night. I said, why did you tell me? He said, you need to know that you're going to always be the last to know. I said, why is that? He said, we don't know. And I told him, I said, why isn't she going to Al-Nan? If there's any Al-Nan there, I want you to know I love you, love you. I really do love you. If you ever need anything, call me. They, they took her to you, and she found you depressing. And the more they took her, the more she found you depressing. So whatever you're doing, keep doing it. <laughs> so I ended up getting a divorce. When, we, when I had nothing and she had nothing, we had nothing. If you want to get sick, make something out of nothing. And then I married me a civilian, religious, southern, southern, real, southern, southern, Baptist, and finally speaking in tongues and stuff. And of course, I hadn't spoken in tongues since I couldn't drink it. But, uh, and we were both in screaming marriages, so it looked like it was going to be fine. And then, of course, we just grew apart. Where Elsa always says we grew together, we grew apart. And now I'm married to somebody where it won't work, and it's beautiful. Uh, finally married one that I would never be seen with. Wouldn't be anybody that you'd ever picture me being with. So I told them I wasn't going to do it again because I was too young. She was never going to marry again because of her bad marriage. And uh, so we were safe running around together, which, you know, the way I think is the way it works. And... Uh, my aunt told me, my badgest aunt said, said, most ever woman is younger than you are now, I wouldn't worry about it. <laughs> Which I thought wasn't too nice, but it was right. 
She's a Catholic. I'm Baptist. She's a Yankee. And I'm definitely not Yankee. In fact, I always was concerned when I got north of Red River in Oklahoma. <laughs> and she's Al-Anon. And that's probably the thing at Ephesus. So at least I've got one Catholic that's not Catholic anymore. <laughs> Catholics do not like their people marrying Baptists. They do not like it. And that's too bad. God, wouldn't you hate them? And I've got the marriage today that has all the freedom and goodness. I didn't want to go back home. I never did do that before. And we really have had a great last six years and looking forward to more. God, wouldn't you hate to miss it? What if we'd have missed it? What if we had missed it? God. You know what we've got today? I guess it's good we don't know it. I guess it's good we don't know what we have. I guess we did. We screwed up. We got something that people spend millions of dollars, thousands of dollars to get. Can't get it. We just can't get it. And we've got it. We got it and wasn't even looking for it. Isn't that amazing? We fell into it. You know what you've done out there all that time? Exactly what you're supposed to. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Beat yourself to death doing what you're supposed to do. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It's exactly what you're supposed to do. Get out there and get drunk, have car wrecks, have fights, and all that kind of stuff. Get in jail, and raise hell, and talk to lawyers and judges. Or get some of the judges in here. <laughs> but isn't that amazing that we got, we're it. We're in the deal. I don't know about other people. They don't tell me. They don't talk to me. But I know about you and I. I know what happened to us. Without a shadow of a doubt, we had to be. If anybody ever knew they were God's chosen people, it's you and I. Maybe you chose them all. I don't know. I don't know anything about other people. But I know I know things about you and I. He chose us. When, I don't know. Whether before we were born or afterwards, I don't know. All I know is you and I did everything we were supposed to do. We did everything to prove ourselves insufficient and to know God you cannot be sufficient. And you and I gave it everything we had. You and I did everything we could do to destroy ourselves and couldn't do it. Anybody that would go with us, we were willing to destroy them too. Which they can be grateful for if they stayed. Because they didn't get in our life. Otherwise, they, if they quit too quick, they won't make it. Isn't that amazing where God put us? And it's the thing that he's got us in, we can't brag about it or nothing. Because you didn't know where you was going. How are you going to brag about saying, I went out there to get properly prepared so God could take me and do with me what he wanted to do? Did you know that's what she's done? No, you thought she was out there having children, trying to have life, become something. Wasn't going to do it. I remember the Baptists used to say, you know, I'm only, I'm nothing but filthy rags. See, you and I did that. We experienced being a filthy rag. And experiencing it. Old Swaggart proved it to us. <laughs> Hell, if I'd known he was having that trouble, we could have taken my car. <laughs> you know, they wouldn't have thought anything about it when Swaggart did his deal. God, he helped me. God, 
he used to make fun of us, you know. He helped me, God, he helped me. Because my second wife got into all that stuff. And God, he helped me. See, he preached repent, but he didn't do it. He's sitting there with that old sex deal I had. He didn't even get to do it for God's sex. Riding around with a girl reading magazines. Isn't that pitiful thing to talk to us? We could have let him at least have one weekend. God, shame. But see, he proved it to us. He proved everything for us. He did it. Here's a guy that had all the anointing of the Holy Spirit. He had all the interpretations that God gave him from the Bible. God used him to lay the hands on the people. He used him to shoot those demons out there, however they do that. I don't know. But he did. And he got all those people in there, used him with that charisma that he's got to bring them all in. Did it? He had it all. What did he do? That, that, that one thing we got. And we've got it. He admitted to God himself. And you and I see what we've got. He didn't do it. And we've got it. God gave it to us. And what is that? We admit it to God, ourselves, and what? Another human being. And that's it. That's the one thing. Bye. Isn't that wonderful? That you and I are in the place that Almighty God designed. That old stuff he used to say, he said, I'll prepare a place for you. He did. Were you all here? Yep. When? When I got ready. Did you know he was ready? No. I just found out I was ready after I was ready. <laughs> you know he was getting to where you were? No. You know you need to go where you were? No. Get there? Yeah, did. When? I don't know. Just whenever it was. Well, then that was the right time. And see, we're right on time. We're not late. We're not early. We're right on the button. Everything that's happened to you and I up through this moment was absolutely necessary because what? Because God said it was. Not because I said it was, or you said it was, or anybody said it was. See, that's the reason professionals can't do anything with us. See, we're going to the top dog, God himself in my life. I go to no other human being for my life. Because, see, with God, I can become what he wants me to be, not knowing what that is, nor how it's to be done, nor when or the way it's to be done, nor what my path is going to be. But, you see, you and I have a path to go down. Nobody goes down there but you and I. I want to go down that path. I want to get some plaque on the way. But if I won't get off of that path, then God's going to transform me into exactly his image, as he says. And he's going to use me to do whatever it is that he wants done. And the majority of the time, I'm not going to know what that is. So you and I have the edge today. You and I have the edge wherever we go. Because we're going to get some plaque. And we're going to get the stuff that the world does. Because the worldly way is not our way. But what did God say? God say, His people do not fit in the world. So you and I did exactly what we were supposed to do. We tried to fit, but couldn't. Because God's people don't fit here. He said, I'll create a kingdom just for my people. And He did. And we're here. And we're in it. And once I'm in that kingdom, 
then I get to live in the only power that overcomes everything, every situation and everything. And I live in that power today just like you. And that power never, never fails us. When you and I call one another, when you and I meet together, when you and I invite this God into our life that day, that power and that God walks with us every day, every moment of every day, just like it has been here this weekend. What a beautiful weekend we've had here today, being able to be with you and me be with you and see that power never fails. Thank God I stayed with you long enough to feel that God loving me that day. But the difference was you. My life was never to be any different until God sent me to be with you and you to be with me. And it didn't fail us here, just like it is right now, when I can feel you loving me and me loving you. Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to today's podcast. My name is Fernando. I am in recovery. I have recovered from a seemingly hopeless situation of drinking and brawling and out of my mind. Now, I'm not drinking and brawling. I am fully clothed and in my right mind. But like my friends say, two out of three is not bad. I pray that you're in good spirits this morning and God has blessed you and continues to bless you. Let's get into the Word of God this morning because it saves lives. Let's go ahead and say the Our Father. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I pray that you get hope and comfort from God's word from my reading. I pray that these scripture selections will be inspiring and encouraging to you for years to come. Please dive into them. Get them into your, your spirit. This scripture I'm quoting from is from the King James Version of the Holy Bible. This is a little compilation of scriptures put together by the American Bible Society. I guess this was given to the servicemen when they were out in the front lines. Joy. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Psalm 126.5 they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. 126.5 Psalm 63.7 Because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings I will rejoice. Psalm 63.7 Our soul waited for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Psalm 33, 20-21 I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man can take it from you. John sixteen twenty-two. Peace. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. 
The Lord be with you all. 2 Thessalonians 3.16 And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.7 Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world give it, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. John 14.27 The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 27.1 When thou liest down, thou shalt not be afraid. Yeah, thou shalt lie down, and thy sleep shall be sweet. Proverbs 3.24 The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. Proverbs 18.10 He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. Psalms 112.7 I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makes me dwell in safety. Psalms 4.8 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. From the dead, 1 Peter 1.3 for thou art my hope, O Lord, thou art my trust from my youth. Psalm 71.5 Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all you that hope in the Lord. Psalm 31.24 Strength The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. Psalms 18.2 Yes, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Psalm 23.4 My flesh and my heart fail it, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm seventy-three twenty-six. Grace. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you turn unto me. Second Chronicles 30, verse 9. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16 And therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you. And therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you. You ever wonder what the Lord is waiting for? He's waiting for us to ask He's waiting for us to say, Uncle. He's waiting for us to say, Yes and Amen. Yes and Amen. I believe I receive. I believe I receive. Thank you for your word. Isaiah 30, verse 18, the whole scripture says, And therefore will the Lord wait, that he may be gracious unto you. And therefore 
will he be exalted that he may have mercy upon you. It's amazing. Uh, scientists say that as soon as we put our eyes on molecules, they animate. They they move around. They, you know, they've done studies that molecules are dormant until we put our eyes on them. And right here, saying the same thing. When we put our eyes on the Lord, then the Lord will be exalted and he may have mercy upon us. I have a lot of crosses around my house and I heard someone say that uh, the victory is in the risen Christ, in the Holy Spirit, in the enthusiasm and the joy and the calming sense. That the point I'm getting to, the cross, there's power in the cross, but Jesus is not nailed on the cross. He's the cross is empty. <laughs> Jesus is risen. He's inside of me. He's walking around here and there. He paid the price for my sin, and I'm totally grateful. Amen. Again, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and of great mercy. Psalm 145.8 Only when I put my eyes on the Lord is the Lord able to be gracious, because He's waiting on me, and full of compassion. Slow to anger and of great mercy. Woohoo! In Ephesians 2 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2 8 9. Listen up. For by grace we put our eyes on the Lord, and we got saved. Through faith. I guess the word faith can be taken as we focus on the Lord and we kept it long enough. It turns into faith. And that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of our works, lest any man should boast. All, all we did was look. Look at the scripture in Isaiah 45, 21, and 22, it says, And there is no other God beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. See, he's waiting for us. Then he tells us what to do. He says, Look to me and be saved. I am the Lord God that gives mercy when you look to me, thus saith the Lord. And be saved, all you ends of the earth, everyone. For I am God, and there is no other that can do this. Isaiah 45, 21 and 22. One more time. And there is no other God beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. Isaiah 41.22. You get a lot of people saying that God is not just. and uh, But God is saying, look to me with a humble heart, with relax, and see the miracle happen. I'm God, and there is no other. The power will kick in, and it will be evident. And he's telling, inviting the whole world to come in for salvation. There is no other God that will give us mercy 
and grace for our wrongs. Amen. In all thy ways, acknowledge him. Eh? Focus on the Lord, and he shall direct thy path. Proverbs 3, 6. Psalm 73, 24. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterwards receive me to glory. Psalm 73, 24. Psalm 119, 105 says, The word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. For thou will light my candle, the Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. Psalm 18, 28. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today's guidance. We thank you that you're guiding us in all our ways. We acknowledge you, Lord that you should direct our path. Lord, we acknowledge you that you will guide us with your counsel. <laughs> and afterwards, receive us to your glory, Lord. Father God, we're asking you, we acknowledge you for your counsel, that your word is a lamp unto our feet. In your light, we see light. In your word, we see light. We see guidance. Thank you, Lord, for, for your mercy. You light up our, our candle. The Lord our God enlightens our darkness. Amen. Thank you, Heavenly Father God, for this time we have a reading of your word. Make it evident in our lives, Lord, and help us to memorize it and be part of your kingdom. For your glory and your honor in bringing others to you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. I love you. I love you. I love you. My name is Joe. I'm an alcoholic. It's good to be here. I'd like to thank the committee for inviting me to come. <clears throat> I am from Santa Monica, California. I'm a member of the uh, Big Book Group. We meet on Tuesday nights at 7.30 in Santa Monica if you're ever out that way. By the grace of God and the fellowship of this program and good sponsorship, I've been sober since August 17, 1982. <laughs> For that, I'll be forever grateful. I used to think that, um, that gratitude was a, uh, something that we feel and something that we think about. And I found out that that's true, but I also found out that it's in action. I used to feel the same way about love, <laughs> because all I had ever really done was felt it a few times, maybe, and thought about it a lot. knew knew very little about expressing that. Um, I was thinking this morning um, when I called a friend of ours from. California to wish him a happy 26th birthday that um, and I meet some of these other men and women in this program that I know that have been going and going and going for years and years and years that you know it's sometimes real petty of me to uh, have any the audacity to complain 
when you have to go to West Covina or South Central Los Angeles or somewhere you really don't want to go and you think about these men and women that have been just doing it for 20, 30, 40 years. Sometimes I complain about going across the street from my house to my home group. <clears throat> got on the plane yesterday in Denver. I've been a week in Denver where I got sober. I moved from Denver to Santa Monica in 1986 when I was four years sober. And... Um, I've been in Denver for about a week and I got on the plane yesterday and took my seat and the, the, the row was filled and there was a guy and a lady in the middle and me on the aisle and it wasn't but five minutes and the only, only other alcoholic coming to the Cornhusker conference uh, was the guy sitting next to me <laughs> from California and um, we just started talking, and about 15 minutes later, after talking about all this stuff, I wondered what this poor lady in the middle between us thought. <laughs> we were trying to be careful not to mention AA or alcoholism or sobriety or, you know, we just left out all the important stuff, right? <laughs> and uh, I was telling him a story about meeting a Baptist uh, fundamentalist minister on a plane one time going to Texas, and... Um, about 10 minutes into our little talk, uh, he was asking me about God, and I was telling him funny stories that you hear in AA, and he just thought they were really cute. And this lady said, well, what are you guys doing? I said, well, we're, we're ministers going to a convention. <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't believe me, and I, I told her I was just kidding. It was a great experience. And then to get here last night, <clears throat> had a great dinner with some friends from California. It's just great being here. Really warm folks. I grew up in the Midwest, in Michigan. Not really the Midwest, though. It was the upper Midwest. Cereal <clears throat> City. I grew up in Battle Creek, Michigan. and um, Wasn't allowed to eat Kellogg's. Um, <laughs> My grandfather was, worked for Post Cereal, so I <laughs> ate Frosted Flakes when I began, began to rebel. <clears throat> I wore a tie this morning um, out of respect to Dick Martin, and um, <clears throat> after an experience I had in Muscatine, Iowa, uh, I mean, they, they called, they called, and they said, we're, we're doing this thing down by the river in a tent. And I had this picture, you know, and I didn't even take a tie. And the whole weekend, Dick was just giving me a hard time. Where's your tie? I mean, I wasn't even speaking. He was asking me, where's your tie? Friday night, Saturday, you know. I missed one meeting on Saturday afternoon. He said, where were you during the meeting? I said, oh, I was meditating. <laughs> he didn't buy that. I asked him last night, should I wear a tie? He said, I don't know. I'm not your sponsor. Right? 
I'm reminded of a story when I look at those that have shown up this morning that I heard one time, and at the time it kind of made me angry, and I know that when that happens there's something I need to look at. And there certainly was something that I needed to look at, and the, the story was about taking a hundred of us from Alcoholics Anonymous and, God forbid, putting us back in the bar. And this man said, you know what you'd find? He said, you'd find about 20 or 30 of us belly up to the bar, wallowing in our whiskey, crying in our beer. And the sad thing would be that some of them wouldn't know there's anything more to find in alcohol, and some of them would enjoy it. He said, then you'd find about 20 or 30 of us in the middle of the bar, sitting at the tables, coming in, drink till we feel good, and then go home. He said, then you'd find about 30 or 40 mad dogs in and out of the bar, going here, going there. Won't settle for just sitting at the bar, wallowing in their whiskey, crying in their beer, because they know there's more to find in alcohol. Won't settle for just coming in, sitting in the middle of the room, drink till they feel good, and then go home, because they, they want it all. They're going here, they're going there, they're getting in trouble, they're doing it up. He said, now you take those hundred people, you put them back in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you'll find they settle for about the same thing they did when they were drinking. He said, you'll find those, and I, I can't do that. Come in, sit at these tables, and wallow in my big book, and cry in all my crap, because I know there's a solution. And I've tried coming into these rooms and just do enough to feel better and then go home. And when I've done that, my own gratitude starts to choke me and it becomes useless because I'm not giving it away. And I was a mad dog then and I'm a mad dog now. And usually when either you do something on the steps or the traditions or the concepts or you do something early in the morning, those seem to be the people that show up let alone doing something early in the morning on the steps. That's <clears throat> I'm also a smoker, so I really, I thought maybe that we'd do this from the, the basement where the smokers are, and maybe close circuit TV up to, up to this room. <clears throat> they got it made, though. They got tables down there, and it's cool, and they, they get to smoke, and drink large amounts of coffee, and... They can heckle me and I wouldn't know. They could laugh or make fun. <clears throat> I've been an um, active participant in all three parts of this program for nine and a half years. Um, active in the steps, active in the fellowship, active in service. Since somebody told me there were three parts to the program. With member prices, Expedia members can find Ray's, catch Ray's, and beat Uncle Ray in Florida this summer. We're about to start our very own streaming service. South Park, the streaming wars is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Yeah! Surprise! We're in the streaming business too. Where'd you get that? Making stuff for streaming services? At the end of the day, there's only going to be like three streaming services. I think you've had too many popsicles. Yeah, I think they had too many popsicles. South Park, the streaming wars now streaming. Why can't a people just have a one streaming club and have everything? Exclusively on Paramount Plus. Now, I didn't know that at a certain time when I was...
five months sober. And I didn't know there was a part of the disease that I was suffering from that starts and gets worse after the last drink. No one ever told me. But I started to experience it. I think some of the greatest experiences I've had with these steps is when, they hap when the experience happens before I understand it or anybody tells me. The first time I was ever asked to do this, I was seven months sober. I was doing my first fifth step with a man that'll be here who's going to speak on Sunday morning. And um, we'd spend about five or six hours one day, and um, he was the state delegate for Colorado at the time, and he said he had to go across town to speak. And I was used to following him around. and we drove across town, we walked into a church in North Denver, and there was about 300 people, which is a big meeting in Denver, and uh, we're walking in the door, and he says, I forgot to tell you, uh, you're speaking first. <laughs> and I thought, you know, how in the world do you do that? So I asked, I was taught to ask. Um, I wasn't told to shut up, because I had, I had been very quiet and withdrawn and shut off for a long time. And I asked him, how do you do that? He said, you go in the bathroom, you get on your knees, you say a prayer, you come out and see what happens. And I did that. And that night before I had finished my fifth step, I experienced the promises that come at the fifth step. Had never read them. Read them the next day. Some of them had happened. I was able to look those people in the eye. I felt a peace and a power flowing through me. Everything that was outlined there. I think it's terribly sad sometimes when we sell this program and the power of God and the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous short when we talk about the 12 promises. It leads new people to believe that's all there are and they only come halfway through the ninth step. And I have found through working this process or being taken through this process on a regular basis, there's both positive and negative promises at each step. They tell me exactly what should be happening as I move through this. There's great promises be, even before the third step, prayer, even before the prayer. In the middle of the second step, in the first step, if I don't go on, it tells me what might happen, what did happen based on my experience. In the middle of the fourth step, after five, I think some of the greatest promises in our book come at the tenth step. People think sometimes because of the strong feeling I have about Alcoholics Anonymous, because this program literally saved my life, that, um, that, I don't, that I don't love AA. I might not like some of the things I see. That would probably be wherever I might be. But there's a way to be free. And there's a way to be free in AA, and there's a way to find what you want in AA. That's one of the things that's really freed me up. Not everybody in AA should want what I want. And I shouldn't want what everyone else wants either. And I think some of the strong feelings I have about AA is because I really do care about AA. And I express that by saying what I'm going to do and doing what I say I'm going to do and showing up and being a part of a group and being a sponsor and being a sponsee and submitting to people that I trust and being accountable, trying to be of service and carry this message. But I have strong feelings about AA. 
when I was five and a half months dry, I had been going to a lot of meetings. I had a sponsor who I thought had taken me through the first three steps. He asked me one day in a hospital, the last treatment center that I've ever been to. It's kind of ironic about that. After being in treatment ten times and becoming a therapist in one, um, <laughs> Alkies understand that because you're either a patient in one or you're a therapist in one, right? And that, that wasn't about helping anyone. That was not about even any kind of a motive to help anybody. That was about something that had been on my mind since before I ever took a drink. What's wrong with me? That was about finding out what was wrong with me. And if I got the right information and the right little piece, everything was going to be okay. Funny thing about AA is you find out what's really wrong with you at a gut level. It's not okay. You have to move on. You have to find some power. But at five and a half months, I didn't know that. There's a girl in our group in Santa Monica that says quite often that, you know, grace really only lasts as long as ignorance does. And once you see a piece of truth, no matter how long you might be sober, you really need a little bit more than grace because you need some power to do something with the truth that you've seen. And I have found that to be my experience. I have gone long periods of time believing that what I think I know is true is true and finding out by submitting myself to someone else and to a process that I can't do and being given the power to move through that process I find out about big chunks of time where I think I'm awake and I know the truth and I find out that it's a lie and there I was at five and a half months with all these ideas about AA I thought I had a sponsor I had a guy that took me around to AA meetings and taught me how to pick up girls in treatment centers. God bless him. We got to the basics of Alcoholics Anonymous when I was brand new. <clears throat> I saw Harry not too long ago. They weren't sure if he was sober, but he still says he's in AA. They don't know what kind of medication he might be on. And he wasn't any different than 10 years ago. And at five and a half months, I woke up one day, and there was a part of my disease that was worse than the day I got here. And no one in all the places that I had ever been and everything I had ever learned ever talked to me about a part of the disease that begins after the last drink. Because the places I had been... You can't sell a spiritual malady that no human power can relieve. As a matter of fact, in those fields, it's not even recognized. There is no such thing as probably even a spirit within us or a malady of the spirit. For the first time in 30 years, in 12 years of therapy, in 10 treatment centers, having become a therapist in one, by the way, I drank on a daily basis with the director of the program that I worked for, that's what I do. That's what I do. I drink. I was in Flagstaff, Arizona not too long ago in a um, beautiful state park, campground next door, wonderful people. And the whole weekend I kept hearing, I don't know if it was even what people were saying, but I kept hearing, you know, we're all exactly where we're supposed to be. And we're all doing exactly what we're supposed to be doing. And I started to experience that feeling. 
It's a wonderful feeling to share in the fellowship. And I'd been with my host the whole weekend. And I'd been with him that morning. He didn't say anything about what he was about to say to me. And they were up at the dais, and there's about 2,000 people, and there's this gorgeous view in Flagstaff, Arizona. And about one minute before they're going to introduce me, they're reading how it works. And my host leans over and he says, Oh, I forgot to tell you. A lady died over in the campground last night that was registered here at the Conference of Alcohol Poisoning. We'd now like to introduce our speaker from Santa Monica, Joe H. Needless to say, <laughs> that was kind of on my mind by the time I got up there. And out of my mouth came, you know, I've been hearing all weekend and I really started to believe it, that we're all exactly where we're supposed to be and we're all doing exactly what we're supposed to be doing. And when my friend reminded me about one minute ago what happened last night over in the campground, I was really reminded, just a little teeny shift in consciousness, what it'll produce within me, that we're all exactly where we shouldn't be doing something we absolutely shouldn't be doing. I'm amazed sometimes when somebody that's been around or somebody in our group is shocked when so-and-so drank. Oh, my God. I mean, they've just done the most natural thing for an alcoholic to do, and they're shocked. I mean, we ought to be shocked by some of these people that continue to show up on a regular basis, week after week after week, <laughs> sober. Sober. An alcoholic doing the most unnatural thing for an alcoholic to be doing. And I guess the whole, the whole proposition here this morning I think what we'd like to do, what I'd like to do, and what they've asked me to do, is uh, four 90-minute sessions. And we'll take a break in a, in a little while at 90 minutes, and then we'll take a break for lunch, and then we'll come back this afternoon. And I guess the, the basic proposition that I'm confronted with this morning and considering the first step is can I do that? Can I pull off the most unnatural thing for an alcoholic to be doing? And I guess another consideration, if I'm really open, and that's what I pray for when I start this work each year, and I do go through the first nine steps every year, and I'm not here to debate anybody. And I know there's two schools of thought, one that says you do, 10, 11, you do the first nine steps once, you live in 10, 11, and 12. And there's another school that says you continue to rework and rework and rework these principles. And I don't care to debate about that because the people in AA that have what I want, a large handful of people in AA that have what I want, continue to do this work. I have a sponsor who will be here this afternoon. He planned his, his arrival just about the time when I'll finish. Um, <laughs> he said it because he didn't want to critique me. I, I told him it was because he didn't want to put up with me all day. Right? We just spent a weekend together. and in a, Two alcoholics, ex-convicts, with 28 other alcoholics in a monastery. <laughs> and I'm going to try to believe that I was exactly where I was supposed to be, doing exactly what I was supposed to be doing. Not this guy. It was a very unnatural place for me. And I've been there twice a year, every year, for 10 years. And I love going there. It's a strange thing. I never liked being around ex-convicts. I never liked being around them when I was one of them. I'm no longer an ex-convict. That was a big piece for me, because anything in AA to separate you. I'm an alcoholic ex-con. Right? 
I'm an alcoholic and uh, anything. Once again, I've fallen into the trick of the ego to do anything it can to separate me from you. Just long enough for me to take a drink. And I believe that to be with the main function of my ego, to separate me from you in any way I can. I used to use my drunkalog to separate me from you, and I thought I was using my drunkalog to become one of you, and I didn't even know that until I found out. It wants to separate me from me and what I truly am and convince me I'm not an alcoholic just long enough. And it wants to separate me from this power that keeps me sober. And any one of the combination of those three just long enough to put me back on a bar stool. And I know that. I used to have a great attachment to my drunkalog. And I don't have a problem with anybody that tells their story. And I, I don't mind telling my story. I don't mind sharing my story with anybody. I can remember times where I've had these inventories. The first one was big and the rest of them have been small and they do get shorter and the amends lists get shorter. And I'm not writing about what I wrote about 10 years ago. But I'm trying to stay current to be here. Maybe it's just for this one moment. You never know. There was one of those moments in Nashville, Tennessee two years ago that could have just passed right by if I was asleep. So I like to do what I can on a daily basis to be awake. Because I've had times where I'm absolutely dreaming that I'm alive, on my feet, wide, up, totally asleep. And I find out about it in the, ne in the next inventory. Or I find out about it by using 10 and 11 in the morning, at night, throughout the day. And I hate missing those moments. Maybe this whole time through those steps, this last time I'm currently in the, in the men's, I've got about five amends to finish in California. So I go to Denver for a week. Right? <laughs> My God, I got amends in Denver and I haven't been there for eight months. <clears throat> Maybe going through the steps this time was really about just being awake for one guy or one gal that's here right now today. And you never know. One person that doesn't know that maybe there's a little bit more than what they've experienced. Because, see, that's what my ego wants to do also. Trap me where I am and convince me this is it. And God is no longer everything. He's now finite. He's measurable. This is it. With any area of my life, with relationships, with money, with business, health, with my relationship with God, with my freedom from alcohol, this is it. You're not going to get any more. That's it. That's what it wants me to do. Maybe there's one person here today that's sometimes baffled in AA because I have had times in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous sitting in these rooms where I absolutely feel that I don't fit because they're just doing it. They're coping with life. They're dealing with their feelings. They're just not drinking no matter what. And I'm sitting there and thinking, why the hell do I have to do all this damn work to stay in touch with this power? Why can't I just do that? I sometimes feel in AA the same I used to when I was drinking. Why can't you just quit? Why can't you just stop breaking my heart? And sometimes I'm sitting here and I hear people saying what they're doing and taking the credit. They don't need God. They don't need to work these steps. They find everything they want in the fellowship. And I sit there sometimes feeling really alone. And most of the time I don't. 
because I'm usually surrounded by people that are just like me. And I surround myself with those people. I'm terribly leery of people that say they walked into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, their first meeting, and everything's just been hunky-dory ever since. And in 90 days, they had a conscious contact, you know. I've had to work my ass off in this program one little piece at a time. I got a guy that I got sober with. We were in treatment together. I just spent five days staying in his home. He's a good friend of mine. He's my broker. That's an amazing thing, a guy like me. I have a guy that cares about me and what, what, what's done with my money. Because I don't seem to handle it real well when it's left to me alone. We were in the same treatment center. We used to talk about drinking. We used to talk about using drugs. He and I sounded just the same. We sounded just the same. He was there because his wife threatened to leave him. And I don't think it matters what reason you get here. I think what matters is why you need to stay. He didn't need to stay. He got out of treatment, became a parking attendant, valet parker in a restaurant. He now owns half of a stockbroker firm. Hasn't had to do anything in AA, never had a sponsor, never been to meetings, never had to work these steps, and he just keeps getting better. Three kids, wonderful house, wonderful wife, and I keep having to submit myself to a process that I don't even really like to just kind of stay above board and somewhat sane and at peace some of the time. And I wonder, what's wrong with me? And I always know there's somebody here that's at that place. I've met him when I was, I, I did it when I was at five and a half months. I reached it again in a year and a half. It happened again at three. It happened again at five and a half. I've met people with a lot of time sitting there wondering about that stuff that they don't tell anybody about in the middle of the night. What's wrong with me? Why aren't I getting it like everyone else seems to be saying they're, they're getting it? Or, or maybe just that little lurking notion that maybe, maybe there's a little bit more than just relief. You know, I've learned all the stuff to do to feel better. I can share 100 times a week. I can go to 300 meetings. I can call 10,000 people. I can talk about it. I can cry about it. But every time I get reminded of it, it's still there. And you reach a place, as I've reached several times in this program and on this path, where you want to start seeking some freedom rather than just relief. Because I found out one thing about relief in an inventory one time. One thing, it's always one thing. Relief is always one thing. Temporary. Real freedom. I can tell you about the worst resentment ever in my life that I spent 12 years talking about in therapy. And all I found out was why I felt that way. I, I just knew more about why I felt the way I felt. And that was toward a father who was 57 years old when I was born. And I hated him. By the time I was 10 years old. Because he wasn't doing with me what I thought he should have been doing. And to, and, to, and to do what I was told to do. Surrounded by people that said, you can't make amends to someone who's dead. But thank God there was always the people in those rooms that said, yeah, you can. Every time I've wanted to get free in AA, there's always two kinds of people around me. Those that say you can't, and those that say you really can. 
And I went to his grave and I did what I was told to do and I walked out of that graveyard and the feelings that I lived with for 31 years have never come back. I respect that man. His age when I was born used to cause me great pain. It now gives me great hope. I would really like to be doing what my dad was doing when I'm 57 years old. I have great respect for the man. He did some amazing things in his life. And I had two older brothers that played baseball with me, that took me places, that were there for me at the game, and couldn't appreciate a wise man that was in my life until it was just about too late. We made our peace when he was in the intensive care unit of a hospital that I was locked in a psychiatric ward downstairs and no one in the family but my mother knew, and I was brought to my dad's deathbed, and we made some peace, and I was downstairs in a white room, had been locked up for 36 days. He died in the same hospital I was in. That used to cause me great pain. I used to hate alcohol. Sober. I love alcohol. I love what it did for me. I love what it did to me. If I hadn't found alcohol at age 13 when I did, I would have probably blown my head off if I would have gone on feeling the way I felt. Because I was separate, different, and apart, full of fear. Every description of untreated alcoholism in this book fit me before I ever took a drink. And it did some stuff for me that I can't, I have a hard time even describing. But I know that you understand if you're like me. And then when it turned on me, it, it was also became my saving grace because it took me to a place where I was open to give up. I'm grateful for every drop I ever drank. I'm grateful for everything I ever did because I've been able to get free of it. Been able to take that trash heap garbage of a past that I never thought would mean anything to anybody and actually have people ask me to share that with them and realize that it's the greatest gift that I have. That's an amazing thing. <clears throat> I'd like to read one thing outside of the 164 pages and I just heard it Again, heard it. There's a difference between hearing something and hearing something. There's a difference between getting something and getting something. My sponsor's been saying something to me for 10 years. It took about six years to get. Although the first time I heard it, I understood every word. And what he's been saying to me, and it really freed, it up, freed me up when it went from here to here, that terribly long, arduous journey from your head to your heart. Sometimes it happens there first. Sometimes it happens here first. And for six years he was saying to me, you know, Joe, no one in these rooms is any closer to God than anybody else in these rooms. And nobody in these rooms is really any closer to God than the last time they took a drink. The only thing that really changes here is our awareness of a presence that's been there all the time. And my perception shifted, and I started to see you different. And I started to see me different. And I started to experience that presence different. Our co-founder said, if you think you're an atheist, an agnostic, or even a skeptic, or have any other form of intellectual pride which keeps you from accepting what is in this book, I feel sorry for you. If you still think you're strong enough to beat the game alone, that's your affair. But if you really and truly want to quit drinking liquor for good and all, and sincerely feel that you must have some help, we know that we have an answer for you. It never fails. 
if you go about it with even one half the zeal you've been in the habit of showing when you were getting another drink. Your Heavenly Father will never let you down. And I've been all those things. I don't think I've ever really been a true atheist. But to wake up seven and a half years sober, or nine and a half years sober, or people that I know that have been doing this a lot longer than me, to wake up with that much time and that much experience with this power and miracles and grace in my life and find pieces of agnosticism within myself and admit that is an amazing freeing thing. See, for someone who's been around, one of the propositions we'll get to at the second step is not a big deal at all. And it's one of the main propositions in the second step. For a new guy like me, it was a major move forward to just be willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself. That is no longer relevant to me. That's not a valid consideration. But it can be as real and valid and considerable now with this many years and for the people I know with a lot more time than I have that do this work, if you just consider one little thing added to it, do I really now believe or am I even willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself that can take me beyond the experience I've had with each area of my life and I'm face to face with my doubt and my prejudice and everything that that chapter talks about that one must face to just once again come to that place of willingness. I was asked in June. I started the, set, the steps this time, June 15th, with an American Indian man from Colorado Springs. And I was done with the fifth step and in the eighth step by June 25th. He gave me five days to write. It only took six hours. Did a, a fifth step on a 13,000-foot peak overlooking Pikes Peak in Colorado Springs with an American Indian man. A year ago, if you would have asked me, would I ever even consider doing anything like that? There's absolutely no way. A friend of mine in California that knows me said, you know what really happened for you this time, Joe? You really lost your attachment to the mechanics. Because I have this idea it has to be done a certain way. It has to be a certain place. It has to be with a certain person. I woke up one day in Santa Monica after being there for over a year and I had an inventory in front of me that was finished, and my head said, there's only one man in this program that can hear that, and that's Don P. in Denver, Colorado. And my next thought was, if you believe that, you're dead. And you better let some people know where you live on that level. You better let some people know you. And I moved from that and fist stepped with some people that I had once worked with. <clears throat> To wake up at five and a half months because of someone exciting me about this program and really convincing me of the two things that need to happen for an alcoholic to recover, and I believe they do need to happen because everyone I've met that stayed around here, it happened. Sometimes they both happen in the same moment. Sometimes one happens and then the other happens. And I believe those two things that had to happen for me was one, I needed to meet a man that I knew was like me. And number two, I needed to meet a man that wasn't like me anymore. And those two amazing pieces came together at the same time. Because, you know, they had paraded those people by me in a lot of different places where I was that I knew were like me. But none of them had a solution. If that's all I needed, 
the county jail would have worked the first time I ever went there. To share with a common peril, if that was all that was needed, I would have gotten well a long time ago. But I believe there's two parts to that cement that binds us, you and I, together. That you and I not only share a common problem, and I know that you're like me, but we also share a common solution. Because they had also paraded a lot of people by me that had a solution. But every time I met one of them, I knew he wasn't like me. He hadn't been where I'd been. He hadn't felt what I felt. He was either a teacher or a minister or a therapist or something. And I'd ask him, well, have you ever done that? Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt that? He'd say, well, no. <clears throat> but when I was in college, they told me that you poor people would, and it wouldn't happen. And it took me five months to wake up to the fact that I'd met the guy in my first meeting. Because in my first meeting, I met a man that said, you don't have to ever feel this way again. And he had been where I had been, and he had done what I had done, and he had felt what I would felt. And most importantly, he drank the way I drank. Not the amount or the length of time or the trouble or any of that. He drank the way I drank. And five and a half months later, I woke up one day, and I was confronted with the nature, the true nature of my condition, further away from my last drink than I've ever been. The third part of this disease, the root of my disease, I was confronted and given the grace to see the spiritual malady that I suffer from. And there was a lie smashed. And the lie was, now that you've stopped drinking, your alcoholism should get better because the problem has been put aside. And I woke up at five and a half months confronted with my problem. And what had happened was that five months late, earlier, my solution that didn't work anymore had been removed. I remember in, in several treatment centers I went to, they used to tell me, alcohol and drugs are your problem, and if you just put them aside, everything will be all right. And after about six of those places, I wanted to say to those people, what do you mean? What do you mean alcohol is my problem? It's the only thing left in the world that ever takes me anywhere but where I am. And it barely does that anymore. And what do you mean every time I put it aside, it'll get better? I put it aside, and there's something that gets worse. It's described on page 52 in the chapter of the agnostic, because I had this idea when I first heard a man talk about a threefold disease of the body, mind, and spirit. I had this idea that whatever this spiritual malady thing is, it must be heavy and esoteric and hard to explain and it probably happened the moment of conception or at least the moment of birth and it's probably Freudian and there's probably someone to blame for it. I mean, that was my reference. And a man said to me, the spiritual malady that we suffer from is described in simple, understandable terms that anyone can understand except maybe someone like you that knows just a little bit too much. I met him and I told him a little bit about my experience and the first thing he said to me was, you know enough about alcoholism yourself and how you feel to be dangerous to yourself and everybody around you. <laughs> he said, why don't you say a prayer that what you think you know be put aside just long enough to have an open mind and a new experience. And you know how I knew when that was working? In my first inventory, I was not drawing on things that I was taught. When I was going through the first step, 
I was not drawing on words and ideas and theories that I used to teach. I used to give great lectures on THIQ, neurotransmitters, chemical enzyme reactions in the body of an alcoholic, and didn't have a clue that I was powerless over alcohol. <laughs> so at five and a half months, I went to this man that I'd heard in my very first meeting, and I asked him for help. And he started to share with me, and he said he only knew one way to do it. And he said we were going to start on the title page of this book, and we were going to go through it, line by line, question by question, direction by direction. And since that day to this, I've never felt the way I did the day I went to his house. That doesn't mean I've always felt great. That means that I have never felt as hopeless. I have never felt as alone. I have never been as miserable as the day I went to his house five months away from my last drink. And he started to talk to me about a circle and a triangle that I had seen at probably every meeting I'd ever been to and didn't understand anything about it. He started to talk to me about a three-part program, unity, recovery, and service. And he started to ask me, where do I think we find each of those parts of the program? Where do you think you find unity? And I said, in the fellowship. He said, where do you think you find recovery? And I said, on the wall. He said, no, Joe, in your case, they made a mistake when they put the steps on the wall because they left the directions in between each one out and they left them up to idiots like you to figure out. <laughs> he said, the recovery program of Alcoholics Anonymous is located in the basic text of Alcoholics Anonymous in the first 164 pages. And I found out a little later on, that's exactly what this book says about itself. And I was not in that part of the program. He said, what about service? I said, well, that's carrying the message. He said, right, are you doing that? And I got cocky for a minute. I said, well, I'm taking patients to meetings from where I used to go to treatment. He said, oh, you're carrying alcoholics to the message. There's a big difference. And all of a sudden I saw I was not a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was, only a, I was only a member of the fellowship. And that there were two other parts of AA that I wasn't involved in. I wasn't involved in recovery. And I wasn't involved in service. And I was expecting the benefits of a three-part program from one part of it. He said, do you know there's a part of the disease for each part of the program? I said, no. He said, you ever heard bring the body, the mind will follow? I said, yeah. He said, well, you bring your body to the fellowship. And for some God knows reason, you're not putting alcohol in it anymore. He said, but you have a mind that's going to take you back to that next drink, if not treated through, this, through the recovery process of this program. And then you take that awakened spirit out into the world and back into this program to be of service. And one day that might become whole. And that's what our circle and triangle means. He said, do you know there's a set of 12 spiritual principles for each part of the program? And I said, no. He said, well, there's 12 traditions for the fellowship and for us in our lives as individuals. We hear a sad thing sometimes in Southern California. I don't know if they say it out here. But sometimes I hear people say the traditions are to the group, what the steps are to the individual. And they've just told me, the new man, there's nothing in the steps for you as an individual. They're only for us, the group. My sponsor told me there's as many principles within the traditions to live your life with whenever you're dealing with more than one person as there are in the steps. 
as there are in the concepts. And he said, those are the concepts of service. And I saw a three-part program for a three-part disease with 36 spiritual principles. And I found out more about AA the day he turned to that title page than I had in five and a half months. I've worked with people that have gone through that and have found out. It's interesting that a week later I was at a noon meeting in Denver in this church and they meet above the chapel. And in the chapel, looking through these windows into the chapel, there's these big, huge stained glass windows with circles with triangles. And I went up to the minister and I said, do you know that's the AA symbol? And he said, yeah, we've had you here for about 20 years, but do you know that's an ancient spiritual symbol that means body, mind, and spirit as one? And I thought, my God, that's the same thing my sponsor shared with me about our symbol. But I didn't know I had a three-part disease. And I thought being powerless over alcohol meant that when I drink, I get in trouble. And I end up places I don't want to end up until I found out there's hard drinkers described in this book that I have known in my life that get in trouble behind booze, that end up places and lose jobs and get in trouble and can be impaired physically and mentally and might even die a few years before their time, who are about as much alcoholic as the man in the moon because all they need is a sufficient reason to stop and they can stay stopped as long as they want. And I didn't know that. Then I found out the only requirement for, for the fellowship, the only requirement to be a member might not be the only requirement to stay sober, this desire of mine. And I had one. There's a part of our book that says the most powerful desire is of absolutely no avail. And I went back to my life to answer that. And I found out my most powerful desire never lasted more than 28 days ever for 17 years. And all of a sudden I found out the only requirement for membership is not the only requirement for sobriety. And amazing things started to happen. I like to look at the first step in three parts because I believe it's a three-part disease. And I think the book lays it out in three parts. I think they tell us about our body and I think they tell us about our mind and then I think they say we're not only bodily and mentally ill, but we are spiritually sick. And they talk about the unmanageability. Powerlessness for me is simple. And how I use this book to get to that is not use it as a set of answers. One of the most dangerous things for me because of the kind of ego I have, and it's, I hear it all the time, is when somebody held up this book and said... The answers are in the book. To me today, that's a half-truth. If they're saying there is an answer to alcoholism in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, they're right. If they're saying to me that I should look in that book for the right answers, that does not work for me. Because if you have an alcoholic ego and you've never stolen anything physically in your life, maybe you've never stolen anything, maybe you have, but by nature the alcoholic ego is a thief. And it takes a little from here, and it takes a little from here, and a little from this book, and a little from this movie. My God, we take stuff from people we don't even like and try to put it in here and make it real. And that's what my drinking was all about. Take it from here and put it in here and feel it for a minute, and boom, it doesn't happen because it's not mine. 
the greatest thing I could share with you about how I've been taught and how I have used this book is to look at the book as a set of questions and directions on how to have a spiritual experience and take those questions and find the answers within yourself so you can fully concede to your innermost self that you're an alcoholic. It doesn't say we learned that we had to admit in our head that we were powerless over alcohol. This is the first step in recovery. It doesn't say we learned that we had to figure out why we're alcoholic. This is the first step in recovery. It doesn't say it's an admission that takes place here because some of us come here and we don't have enough to do anything with up here. It says that these people learned that you must fully concede to your innermost self that you're an alcoholic and this is the first step in recovery. And I found that those answers, if I can be given the right questions, take place here, experientially, and has nothing to do with knowledge. I had all the knowledge in the world about alcoholism. I had more than it was worth having. I had enough to be dangerous to everybody around me. I had too much knowledge. And I think the greatest analogy and one of the greatest pieces of freedom that comes in this program is when you start to learn the difference between knowledge and experience. Between understanding somebody saying something the first time they say it and then experiencing it six years later and getting it. The difference between thinking it and getting it. The greatest analogy I've ever heard is the difference between what you thought it would be like to have an orgasm the day before you had one and what you knew it was like to have one the day after you had one. And I think that's what a spiritual experience is like. That long road between knowledge and experience. So they started to pose the right questions. And I started to lose the attachment I had to my drunkalog. Because when confronted with a basic question by some men who cared, why do you think you're an alcoholic? My God, these men just didn't assume that because I was in the room, I was in the right place. What a cop-out that is to not spend any time with our new people that come to us that have that question that we had in the back of our minds. What's wrong with me? Oh, if you're in the room, you're in the right place. These men cared more than that because they had met people that were in these rooms that were not in the right place, and I've met some since that I helped find out that they weren't alcoholic and watched them get free, and they thanked me. If you would have asked me two years ago, what's your goal and what do you really like to see happen with the people you work with? I would have said that my goal is that they do these steps, and what I really like to see happen is their life change. And because of a series of experiences I've had in the last two years, if you were to ask me today, what's the goal with the people you work with and what do you really like to see happen? My goal is when I meet somebody, when I meet one of these guys, one of these absolute crazy lunatic guys that I meet, is to help them find out anything else they could possibly do except this and watch them get free on finding their own truth. Because I, I would love to find myself. I would love to find anything else to be doing, either in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous or out of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, than to be in the middle of some amends that need to be cleaned up at 10 years of sobriety. But to this day, 
I haven't been able to come up with anything better. And I've worked with very few people. But when you look at it from that way, try to find a way out to try to find a way in. Maybe look at maybe you're not to find out you really are. You begin to experience spiritual paradoxes that make no intellectual sense. Thank God. Can some of you imagine going back to some of your favorite places or your favorite dope dealer or your favorite liquor salesman and saying to them, you know, I learned something in AA I want to share with you that's really going to help you with your life. If you really want to keep what you have, give it away. Right? That makes no sense to those people. But why is it most of us in this room absolutely understand in our hearts what it means to be able to keep what you have is you must give it away. I mean, imagine me going back to the Michigan State Penitentiary and saying to some of those guys that I knew, listen, I found out something in AA I want to share with you that's really going to help you with the rest of your time here in the penitentiary. If you really want to win, surrender, right? <laughs> you don't do that in the Michigan State Penitentiary. You don't do that on the streets where I lived either. Imagine saying something to someone like me with all this knowledge, all that stuff they pump into you in treatment that we have to unlearn them. The old, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. Our group takes a meeting to a treatment center. We were there a few months ago. And you know what meeting they had just before our group? Relapse prevention techniques. that an alcoholic can employ in his life to prevent his own relapse. My God, if I could prevent my own relapse, I wouldn't be in Omaha, Nebraska on a Friday morning. I would be out there preventing my own relapse, dealing with life, coping with my feelings, and managing my life, and I would be wonderful. But that just isn't the case. But how do you take a guy like me who time after time after time after time left treatment with a plan. Anybody here works in the field, you ever meet anybody like me, don't do the aftercare plan with him because you actively involve a person like me in what he's going to do to keep himself sober, and we just absolutely love that until it doesn't work. Once again, the only time I ever left treatment without a plan was the last time. The only time I ever had to pay for treatment was the last time. That's ironic. I had a great Blue Cross Blue Shield card. Once a year, 30 days. I used it once a year for 30 days. You go on summer vacation, I go to the care unit, right? Because <laughs> where I end up every year since I was 17 after 11 months of drinking is in need of a place that will take me for 30 days. That's where I end up until I was 24. And then I gave up on that, and I went to a place where I knew they didn't have any. Further away, you could go in the continental United States because I didn't, couldn't get a passport. And I moved to Key West, Florida to die, and I failed at that. And I went there to die. And I couldn't even pull that off. So you, you submit to a man like me. If you admit you have no power, you receive more than you've ever had. Does not compute. But as long as you have any power and think you have a way, there is no other way. That does not compute. 
until it computes, until I've drank enough, until I've been beat by alcohol into a state of reasonableness where common sense becomes uncommon sense and I understand things that make no intellectual sense and alcohol did that for me. Because one day I understood when a man said, when you no longer have a plan of what you're going to do, you might have a chance of staying sober. And if you can concede that you have no power, you might receive more than you've ever had. I understood. And I began to experience it. But that to someone who still has a plan, or has a way out, or can just not drink no matter what, the most dangerous message in Alcoholics Anonymous nowadays. I don't know if they say it here either. I've never been to a meeting here until last night. But when, you, when people say to someone like me, like they say in Southern California at some places, that we just don't drink no matter what, you lead people to like me to believe that that's something I can do. Because some of you know better, and some of them know better, and sometimes I should know better. Because what we should be saying for those of us that know better is that by the grace of God, I haven't had to take a drink no matter what. But that's not something I can do. If I could just not take a drink no matter what, I wouldn't be here. I don't just have a living problem. There are plenty of places out there where one can go to get power, to do what they want and live their life and manage how they feel and cope with life other than Alcoholics Anonymous. I can't keep myself sober, and that's the basic admission that comes through a series of considerations and questions. I was taught to use the doctor's opinion as a set of questions. I thought, well, who in the world is this doctor anyway? 1935, more has been revealed. I mean, we know so much more. Who in the world is Dr. Silkworth? And an old guy that had been around since the original 100 members told me to why not consider that chapter by turning every statement I could into a question for me and looking for the answer within my experience. To answer a question experientially is totally different than answering a question in your head. Because I go... Thanks, Aaron. My name is Steve Mullen. I am an alcoholic. Through the grace of God, the power of the simple program, and you find people. I've been given this precious gift since August the 12th of 1989, and for that I am extremely grateful. I'm not, I hope I don't spill on the equipment and start a fire, which I've done before. And I'm going to set my timer because I will talk way over if I don't. So um, my wife's here, and uh, Krista, and she is happy I'm on a timer probably. So <laughs> anyway, um, thank you guys for having me. Uh, Lisa, I know she's not here, but I uh, really appreciate her asking me to participate. It's always an honor. And um, Mark, glad you're here. Um, <clears throat> uh, we really, this is weird for me. I always get a little nervous doing this, even though I, I've done it a lot. And um, I, I swore to myself when I was really new, I had a few months and I was in a meeting one time, a speaker meeting, and I realized that one day they were going to ask me to speak and that that was going to be the day I left because there's no <laughs> way I'm going to do it. I'm not going to do it. You, you know, I mean, you'll figure out I'm a phony and, uh, you know, just whatever. Uh, and so I'm glad that didn't work out that way. Uh, I'm glad I stayed. Um, so I, 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 
usually takes me about 40 minutes to get warmed up and to get sober. So I'm going to try and get sober a little quicker today and um, just share with you a little bit about my experience, strength, and hope. Most of which has been in sobriety. Um, you may not be able to tell, but I, from you may be able to deduce that I sobered up a little bit young. Uh, and that's correct. I was 16 years old. And uh, I, I turned 16. Uh, fortunately for me, I uh, failed my driver's test. And so I had to wait to get my driver's license for a while. And uh, for between then and when I got it, I got put in treatment. So I never drove drunk uh, or legally uh, <laughs> before I got here. People talk about drinking in bars. I never had that experience. Uh, I've been in bars, but I've never, I never drank in, in them. Uh, just a lot of things. Um, I didn't lose jobs because of my drinking because I never had one. Uh, just <laughs> things like that. <laughs> you know, just, I don't know. Uh, but in, uh, when Lauren read how it works, uh, our adventures before and after make clear you know, <laughs> these ideas. And I've had a lot of adventures after. Uh, I really, I really have. And, and I've stayed sober through it all. And, and I've stayed active and stayed close to Alcoholics Anonymous. And God, I can't tell you how grateful uh, I am for that. And, and I have so many friends and, and uh, my life today is just really extraordinary. And it's not always easy, but, um, you know, it's simple in a lot of ways. And... <laughs> The only thing that complicates it is my mind, right? And what I've come to understand in Alcoholics Anonymous is everything is always fine. It's always well. Uh, the only thing that tells me it's not is my thinking. And I can just be going along and my day can be wonderful and somebody can do something or I can see something and sometimes nothing has to happen. Sometimes it being fine is the problem, you know? I got to... It's like I always have to have a hand back here stirring it up, you know, just to keep, like, I can't, you know, my sponsor says, you know, when everything's, if you're bored and you don't have much going on, that's called serenity. You'll get used to it. <laughs> so anyway, um, so, you know, we're, we're on this spiritual path and, and I'll just to backtrack a little bit. I, I, I grew up, um, here in Dallas, uh, just North of here, a couple of miles up near, the Galleria before the Galleria was there. And I, I was born and raised and got sober in the same house, which is weird. Um, but I'm weird, so that's fine. Uh, and uh, I had a really normal, very normal dysfunctional childhood. You know, it's just nothing, nothing too crazy, but nothing, you know, it wasn't necessarily June and Ward Cleaver. Um, but no real reason to be alcoholic, right? And, and I, and when I first got sober, it was back in the day, there was a lot of therapy stuff going on. And I really was interested in finding out why I was an alcoholic and make, what, what did my parents do to screw me up? Cause obviously this isn't my fault, you know? And, uh, it's really lucky to have some old timers here that said, listen, there's, I got good and bad news for you. The bad news is this is all your fault, right? <laughs> it's all your fault. The good news is it's all your fault, right? Because if it's not your fault, man, you're screwed. There's just nothing you're going to be able to do. So 
that was a real blessing to have that and the old timers and my sponsor in the early days and still to to these days you know it's weird i i have a new home group uh my new home group is the simply a group in in irving and i went to a meeting there and i loved it it's right down the street from my house and and uh you know covid changed a lot of things but um i my old home group was the clean air group across town and i still love it my mom goes there a lot of my friends go there but um I found a place a little closer to home, and, and I can be active there and involved. And I have the most sobriety, which is weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've always been the youngest guy in the room and not the most sobriety, and it's very strange uh, to be in that uh, position. And But I also know that I'm just, I'm just an alcoholic. You know, that's one of the things when I came in that uh, I was really young. You were all old. Uh, really old. <laughs> if you were 21, you were old to me, you know, I mean, so, <laughs> uh, and I was really blessed to have somebody say, look, don't be different here. That'll kill you. All right. Just be, just be a regular alcoholic and just be one of us. Don't be a young person in AA. Don't be a this or a that or whatever. Just be an alcoholic and, 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 uh, you can make it here. And they treated me that way. It was a real blessing. Um, because man, from the earliest age, I felt different, right? From the earliest age, I just felt like everybody else got the memo. I didn't get the memo. You all seemed happy. You looked happy to me. You looked like you had it together. You knew what was going on. And I didn't, and I just didn't. And it didn't matter what environment I was in, whether it be like church or school or, you know, in the neighborhood. And so I just did what, uh, I just didn't know. I like to think that I was born, I was born on a dry drunk combined with the midlife crisis and i had that all growing up man that's how i felt just like oh, i gotta have this and that and fit in i got my, everybody's gotta like me and all this that and the other and um you know i just uh, my parents did a good job i mean they sacrificed they sent me to schools and did this stuff and i was semi-smart and a- athletically semi-gifted so i just you know it was fine it was really fine around me, you know, and if anybody looked at me, they'd say, he's fine. But in my head, man, I was not fine. <laughs> like I said, I was restless, irritable, and discontented. And, and about 10 or 11, I don't remember exactly when, because I was 10 or 11, and uh, early 80s, right? And I was in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, and I had my first experience with alcohol. I'm not sure if it was my first drink, but it was the first time that I felt, uh, it was the first time alcohol, I experienced it in a way that was a miracle. I had a few drinks. I was in this giant ballroom, and I was with this old guy, Nick, who was like 12, and he said, listen, we're going to get in there, and we are gonna, well, we're going to get this champagne and wine off this table, this big ballroom, and he said, this stuff is weak, so we might we need to drink a lot of it. So we, <clears throat> we did that, and I mean, just all that restless, irritable, and discontent, all that stuff just it melted away. It was like the world just went into Technicolor, and I'm like, oh, my God this is amazing. No wonder people do this and blah, blah, blah. And and it was really a a spiritual experience in a way. It was really a spiritual experience for me. And it turns out that they have a name for that. We have a name for that here in our big book. And that is called an abnormal reaction to alcohol. Okay. That is not the way most people feel when they have a few drinks. Right? It may make them feel good, and like my father says, well, I get, you know, I feel a little relaxed and everything, but if I have too much or if I drink too fast, you know, I, I start to feel out of control, and I don't like that. And I'm like, what? Are you talking about, dude? 
that's when the magic starts, right? Feeling it is the deal. And so I didn't know. I didn't know. And I thought, I'm going to do that as often as I can, which, you know, at 10, 11, that's not as often as I would have liked. But, uh, you know, things happened for me. I had a higher power working for me at that time. My uh, next door neighbor was a friend of mine and his parents, I don't think they were alcoholic, but they used to order old charter bourbon by the pallet. And so I had a lot of, and they, you know, I had access and, and uh, so I, I just progressed and it didn't take long for me to be just full blown. And then you threw in all the drugs and I did a lot of that. And, um, by the time I was 14, 15, I was just daily and, and, uh, I had some experiences. I, I just, uh, uh, that I started to have bad experiences. I steered out of, I, I somehow uh, kept out of a really major trouble just cause I didn't get caught, you know? Um, one time where I, I was, uh, I had to have, I had to be entrepreneurial at my freshman year of high school. And, uh, cause you know, I didn't have a job and, but I needed to make some money. So I started to, um, sell some things and, uh, there was, uh, somebody that, um, what was that? Did I break something? Okay. All right. Anyway, um, so I was trying to sell this stuff and some guy came and said, Hey, you know, I want to get this from you. And I said, okay, meet me here and there. And this was my first time I had some sort of a spiritual thing happen to me. And I don't, I didn't know it was at that time, but, um, this guy came up to me and I just, I had what I was going to sell him and he had a wad of money in his hand. And I said, I'm sorry. I don't, uh, I don't have it. I couldn't get it. And I'm sorry. And I don't know why I was saying it as I was saying it. I'm like, something's going on here. And that was the day before Christmas break of 1988. And we came back and 29 people got arrested. And it turns out he was an undercover narcotics officer. And I just had this weird experience and I don't know why I didn't get in trouble. I mean, I was underage, so it would have probably not been a big deal, but I don't know. It would have been a felony because it was a lot of, it was a federal offense what I was selling. So, um, just things like that. And, uh, I was starting to feel a little desperate because I knew that I just sobriety was so uncomfortable for me and it was stop. It was really quickly stopping becoming fun. And what had I was, I never had this issue where it was like, I tried to be like, drink like a normal person. I never had that. I was around, I finally found a group of people and to fit in there, just the more screwed up you were, the better. And I loved that. I, you know, I could excel at that. And so I just never had this thing about like, you know, I mean, our literature says well, some of us want to return to normal living. Well, I never had any of that ever, you know, so, um, but that led to a few things and to a period of desperation. And I had, you know, I, I had a moment where I uh, decided to, uh, I was going to stop, right? And I had a little something happen that was, uh, you know, some of our bottoms are different. You know, you can compare yourself to others, but the truth is, is that whatever it is, you know, it's personal to you. And mine was just uh, coming out of a blackout uh, one day and I was in a 7-Eleven and I was a mess. I dressed terribly. Uh, just when I dressed nice, I, I looked terrible. That's, I just was a little punk rocker kid. And 
So, and then I, I had come to, and I'd thrown up on myself. And, and, uh, so I looked even worse than how I usually looked worse. So I was in this 7-Eleven and a group of kids came in and they knew me and they just, the looks on their faces, they didn't say anything to me. I was half drunk and I just threw the fog. Just remember this one girl, the look on her face, she was horrified. And I can't explain to you why that, that, you know, was my, you know, that was my wake up call. I don't know why that was that, but I thought I'm going to die. And I saw it. I like saw it. I just saw this devastation and destruction if I didn't do something different. So, and at that point, uh, my brother who was younger got head put into treatment. My mother was in, uh, starting to go to AA and, um, this was in the spring of, of 89. And what I had decided to do, um, they had a great program back then in the uh, mid eighties and late eighties. And, uh, it was started by none other than Nancy Reagan. It was a one-step program, and it was just say no. <laughs> just real simple, three little words. I'm like, man, easy, you know? So that was, uh, that was the deal. I was like, well, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to start tomorrow, and uh, that's what I'm going to do. So I, um, I tried that. Right. I, I, I tried the, the one step program and I tried it for a while and I don't know how long a while was. It could have been three or four weeks. It could have been three or four months, but at some point uh, I couldn't do that. And I tried every day and I would wake up and say, I'm going to try harder. And finally, one day I tried, I said, I'm going to try with every fiber of my being and like an hour passed or something before I, I couldn't do it. I was so uncomfortable and I didn't know about this mental obsession, right? I didn't know that once I started, I couldn't stop, uh, but that the real problem was I couldn't start not starting again. I couldn't stop not starting. And uh, no matter what reason I had, no matter what logic I could use in my brain, there was going to come a time sober um, where my mind just said, you can do it, you can have it, or it's okay, or just F it. I mean, one of those things was going to happen, and I was going to go. So, um, I surrendered that day to alcohol and, and I just said, well, I'm just going to go on as long as I'm going to go. And I don't know if that's weeks, months, years, I don't know. But, um, and fortunately through a series of events, I got put into an inpatient treatment center. And when I found out I was going, I remember thinking, at least I'm going to be sober for 30 days. Like I knew that, um, that was the only way like lock me up, take me away from my environment because I just couldn't do it. And at the end of the month, this was back when you could go to treatment for as many times as you wanted and forever you could be in treatment for years if you wanted to be and you could go 38 times. It's not that way now. But fortunately, I went to the inpatient and then they sent me to this outpatient adolescent unit with these crazy kids and I didn't feel like I fit in there and uh, they started taking us to some meetings and I thought some of these folks are interesting I mean they're old but they're interesting and uh, I don't know if any of you were here yesterday if you heard Reno John anybody here anyway it was a, a wonderful meeting and, and he talked about um, he just talked about uh, well I don't know where I was going with that he, he said something that I thought about but anyway uh <laughs> Yeah. So he, uh, anyway, I came in, he went to meetings where I went to meetings. So I would see things like him, 
people like that and I'm thinking, wow, man, they're, you know, they're really interesting and all that. But, and I related to some of them, but I thought, I don't know, you know, I, I'm just not a hundred percent sure if I'm really an alcoholic and I read the book a little bit and I'd be like some of this language, you know, and war fever ran high in the old town. All right, that's, that's, come on. Couldn't I come out with a more updated, you know, thing? And <laughs> I don't know. I just thought, <laughs> whatever. And uh, I didn't know what they were saying. They were like spirituality. I'm like, that's eh, for when you're old, you know, spiritual. You know, I'm busy and I got to make stuff happen now. And, and uh, so I, I, um, I, but I kept coming. And fortunately, the, I was in this treatment center, and, um, which was fortunate because I started my sophomore year of high school, um, you know, right after I picked up my desire chip. <laughs> so that's not really super conducive to, uh, that, you know, nurturing sobriety environment. Um, but I really did have some things that happened that were kind of miracles. When I look back, I mean, uh, there were some people in that high school that started going to the outpatient treatment center I was in. And so I had some people that were sober there and we'd go to meetings at the, in the counselor's office or whatever, uh, once a week. And so it was, um, it was really pretty cool, but I still didn't, I was very uncomfortable. I was uncomfortable around people my age or people not my age, which is everyone. Um, but I went and I was, cause I was scared not to, I was more scared not to go. <clears throat> and I would go and I'd listen to these people and I'd think, I don't know. And there's a guy, Sandy Beach, and I know a lot of you know who he is. And he shares about being clear about our, my alcoholism and um, it says in, in the big book you know we have to we have to admit to our innermost selves that we're alcoholic and that's really the first step in recovery and it's important to do that because if I'm not clear then I will suffer from the delusion that I'm almost an alcoholic you know and he talks about the consequences of almost being an alcoholic We'll almost go to enough meetings. We'll almost take the steps. We'll almost get a sponsor. We'll almost do the things we need to do. The same as if I jump out of an airplane and almost grab a parachute, right? If you're somebody like me, that is the consequences. Because um, one of the things that the book and everybody sharing their experience, strength, and hope made it crystal clear to me was that my my life was going to end up one of four ways. I was either going to... Um, die an alcoholic death, be locked up in an institution or jails, prisons, or I was going to die sober. I mean, that's it. There's like no other option than that. And, um, and that was, I was still unsure. And then one night I was working, I got this little job, I got a treatment. I was working at this grocery store and I got out one night and it was like eight o'clock at night. And the, in the same parking lot at that grocery store, it was at Forest and Inwood. There was a group called the Trinity Group. I'm sure some of you remember the Trinity Group. And uh, I didn't go to the Trinity Group because my mother went there. I'm sure none of you have issues with your mother, but I did not want to go. I was 16. I didn't want to go to meetings with my mother. So anyway. But it was a speaker meeting, so I thought, I'll go, right? So I went, and uh, there was a room that was, um, it was a big room. You walk in, it was a, they set it up this way on purpose, I know, because when you walk in, you're kind of in the middle of the room. 
and coffee's way on the other side. So you have to walk all the way across, you know, and I'm walking in and they're reading how it works. And I grab coffee, I sit down and they said, our speaker tonight is Lem W. And the oldest man on the planet gets up. And I just <laughs> was extremely disappointed. I thought, I've wasted my night here. I'd be home playing Atari. And this guy is, he gets up. He's had a stroke, so he's got a cane, and he walks up. <laughs> and I just thought, I've made a terrible decision, and there's no way that this is going to be good in any form or fashion. And, you know, <laughs> like I've been wrong a <laughs> hundred thousand times in sobriety, this guy gets up there, and, uh, you know, he tells my story. He shares everything that he thought and felt, I thought and felt, right? <laughs> and... Um, you know, it just blew me away because I thought for sure there's going to be nothing good, good gained from this meeting. And he just shared and it just hit home. And it was the first time I, I it cleared away any of the doubts. Right? And I knew absolutely I was in the right place. Um, and that I was an alcoholic. And, you know, more importantly, and I didn't realize it then. Uh, but I realized it a long time later. The other thing that he gave me um, was he gave me the hope that I could be sober and happy. Because up to that point, I thought, it's over. We're all given our allotment of joy and happiness, and I used it up, right? And people would say, oh, you're you're so lucky to be here at such a young age. And I'd be like, what in the hell are you talking about? I should just be starting to have fun. All these other people that I know are just starting, you know, and I'm, and here I am and it's over. Like, like I may be able to stay sober, probably not, but maybe, but if I do, I mean, it is not going to be good, you know, and I'm very uncomfortable and I just had never experienced being sober and happy. And I'm so, so grateful I got in with a group of people who were active in AA. They were taking the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. They were living it in their life, and they taught me how to do it out of our big book and literature. And um, because it says, you know, in the 12 and 12, and I've heard this said a bunch more, and which is great because I, for some reason, hadn't heard it for a long time, but I started to hear it more. More and more people mention the thing that it says in the 12 and 12 about what the steps are. Right. And the steps are, uh, it's defined as a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to drink and enable the sufferer to live happily and usefully whole. Right? And um, I just, I thought there's, I don't know what that looks like. Right? Uh, in my mind, I immediately made up that, well, what happiness is, is you get what you want. You know, I mean, that's what I was, I came away from childhood thinking you, you got to be smart and you got to work hard so that you can get a bunch of stuff. And then when you get a bunch of stuff, you can have a bunch of stuff and you can accomplish a bunch of stuff and then you'll be happy. That's what I made up. And I made that up and I brought some of those ideas to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, it says our old ideas. Well, I have new old ideas. I just make them up. Right. I don't, nobody has to teach me. I just come up with an idea and say, this is the way it's going to be. And I'll just, I won't check with anyone. <laughs> I'm going to say, you think this is a good idea? No, I'll just say, I think I'll just base life decisions, major life decisions off of this 
thought, the idea that I've had. So I did that. I did that for a lot of years. I got, I was lucky to get uh, involved in Alcoholics Anonymous and start to take the steps. But a lot of that for me was just, I, I don't know, I didn't get it. I, I thought I'm going to work the steps so that I can get the stuff and be happy. Because I hear speakers get up and they talk about the, I hear the Clancy's of the world and all these big people get up and talk about their destruction they had in their life. And then they came in and worked the 12 golden steps and now they have all this wonderful stuff in life and blah. And I didn't really hear the other things they were talking about, the, the spirituality. I didn't know what unmanageability meant. I thought unmanageability was the managing and keeping a job and all this stuff. I didn't know that, no, no. Unmanageability is you can't live life and not be restless, irritable, and discontent, sober or not. Right? I can't function in the world without this thing going bazonkers. I can't function without this thing just driving my every, you know, it's just, it won't shut up. It's 24 7, 365. And um, it's my thoughts and feelings that are unmanageable, and I can't, you know, and, and, and what that stems from, I know now, is this thing that they taught me about. And they said, Steve, you're, you're, uh, you're extremely self-centered. You are self-will run riot. And what that means is, is that if you are extremely self-will run riot and you're self-centered, the only way you can be happy in that situation, it looks like, is if everything goes your right way. Right? That's the only way you can be happy in that situation. And that means everybody's got to act right. They got to, they got to do the things you think is right. You got to get, you, of course, you got to have enough money. And of course, you can get all the money in the world. It's still not enough, right? Because there's always more. That's the, and that's the real crux of the self-centered mind like mine is that the answer to everything is always more or different or something. But whatever it is, the answer is always out there. It's always, I must change out there, one way or another. And God, that is hard work. <laughs> that is really difficult work, you know? I mean, it's like, oh, I've got to make sure, i got to get Putin in line. <laughs> right? I mean, I'm over here in this basement of the church, and he's over there. <laughs> it's insane. It's insane to live that way. And, but I do, and I still can do that today, but... I said, dude, you got to be rid of this selfishness, you know, or, or else it kills us, you know. <laughs> so the question is, well, how do I, how do I do that? Well, there's this thing called a higher power. You're going to want to, you're going to want to try and get in touch with that, you know. And unlike the first step where it talks about this absolute certainty, right, I'm so glad they were uh, patient with me because I had a lot of hangups about the higher power. I knew what they were talking about this God and I had a bad experience with that and I didn't want to, um, you know, I was just nervous. I thought, oh, you know, I see the people who really turn their, I saw step three, well, turn your will and life over. And I thought, I don't know. It sounds like I'm, you know, can you still bowl, you know, <laughs> if I turn it over, am I going to be like, you know, do you just give all your money away? There was a skit on this. There's this group about, uh, <laughs> I'll just, there's this YouTube video and there's this group of people and it's this joke 
spoof skit or whatever, and they're sitting around and they're praying. They're like, God, please, God, just communicate with us and tell us, you know, what is your will for us? And this voice comes over and is like, hello, you know? And they're like, oh my God. They're like, give all of your things away and help to the poor and, you know, be celibate. And they're like, whoop. And they kind of look at each other and they're like going, what, what was that, God? And it's like, give all your things away and sell all, give all your money to the poor and, you know, be celibate. And one of the guys goes, this place is haunted. And then they all run out, you know? And that, that's like, that's what I thought, you know? <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, anyway, so this is what I think. And I think, oh, fire, you know, I'll turn over this drinking, right? But obviously, you know, it's not going to work with all this other stuff. And, the, and one of the things that I noticed pretty early on is no matter what problem I see, back then, uh, this is before they got smart, you know, sometimes the chair, so I'd go to the meetings and they'd say, does anybody have a topic? And that's a terrible idea. We don't do that anymore for good reason, right? I mean, you have the strangest topics when that happens, right? So, you know, I'd bring up topics, you know, and be like, she left, you know? And <laughs> so one of the things that you notice pretty early on, especially if you get a sponsor, is they say the same thing. Like, it seemed like no matter what problem I had, right, well, no money. You're going to take the steps with a sponsor. You're going to go to meetings. You're going to read the books. You're going to work with others. You're going to be of service. And they're like, well, what is that? How, I, where's the part in that about the money? When does the money arrive? Don't worry about that. Do this other stuff. And, of course, that's the answer, right? That's the answer that there's not enough money is do this stuff, and then somehow it works out. And then she left me or whatever, you know. <laughs> what do I do now? Well, you got extra time. You're going to go to more meetings. Uh, you're going to take the steps with a sponsor. You're going to be of service. You're going to, you know, read the books. You're going to carry the message. And it's always the same <laughs> damn solution, you know. And uh, <laughs> I'll never forget the first time I heard, I heard Sandy Beast talk about this. And he said, if, because I argue with that. I'm thinking, no way. If if, if you want me to list out my problems, I'm going to have a thousand problems and there's got to be a thousand unique solutions for all that. And he said, no, no, there's one problem that solves all that. Right. And if there is a group of people that should never dispute one solution for all problems, it is us. Right. Because what did we do before we got here? One solution for all problems, no matter what's going on, a few drinks, no problem. You know, and nothing out there changed, you know, nothing out there in the world changed. And we can do the same thing. It turns out we can do the same thing spiritually through the 12 steps that we did with alcohol. Right. And we just don't destroy our lives and those about us. We can do it constructively and spiritually, but it's very difficult because living a spiritual way of life is completely counterintuitive to the way I think it should be done. You know, if a thing comes up in my life, I think, oh, problem. This is my responsibility. God will not do for me what I can't do for myself. So let me get out my thinker and let me try and solve this problem and uh, see if I can't fix it. And it seems like that that's the logical way, you know. 
you got to identify the problem and do the thing and da 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 da. And uh, when the real solution is let go, you know, they say let go. And I'm like, what does that even mean? And, uh, you know, it turns out that there's this power here that we have to tap into. And that's also counterintuitive because I think to myself, okay, I need to learn the proper way and learn the skills in order to connect with this power. And it turns out that's wrong. Right? It's like, no, 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 no. Well, how that's going to work is um, you are going to grow spiritually and get closer to this higher power by removing the things that block you from this. And what will happen, Steve, is, see, what you don't understand is there is this power already deep within you, right? And says in the agnostics or wherever it is that, you know, it's the great reality lies deep within, okay? It's already there. I just have to get all of the old ideas and the crap out of the way for it to come out. You know, I have mistakenly thought all my life that I am supposed to clear this channel so that I can get to God. And what I'm really doing is I'm clearing this channel so that God can come out. And Chuck, che Chuck Chamberlain used to say, you know, what you come looking for, you come looking with. Okay. And there's examples of that. There was a guy that spoke at the anniversary here last year, Bob, or whenever that was, Bob B. And he said one time that you're ever sitting there in a meeting and somebody says, or wherever, and you hear somebody say something and you've never heard it before, ever. But you know that it's the truth. You know it just in your soul. <laughs> And the question he said this one time when he was sharing, he said, where, where do you think that, why do you think that is? Where do you think that comes from? It's because we all came here knowing already, we already came here with what we need and what we need to, to have. We're just so, it's so clouded by our heads and what we think and blah, 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 and our old ideas. You know, that if we can let some of that stuff go, we uncover, discover, and discard those things. That stuff just, we connect with it. And one of the other examples I had of that was when I had my daughter. Oh, I didn't have her. <laughs> but I contributed. And uh, I raised her. She's 19 now, and she's beautiful. And she's living life. And uh, But when she was really young, I remember sitting there one time. And it was I was going through, I had about 14 or 15 years of sobriety. And my life was coming unraveled. I was getting divorced from my first wife, and, and I, had, uh, I had built this life up, right? And I had, I had uh, really gotten, uh, I got everything that I thought would make me happy. I had the nice house, I had the job and the money and, and all that, but I knew it was enough, to, I should be happy, and I was not happy. So I started saying these prayers about, God, I don't care what my life looks like anymore. I just want to be of service and be happy, and that's it. And so my life completely unraveled. <laughs> you know, and as my wife says, sometimes it seems like it's coming apart, but it's coming together. I didn't realize <laughs> that's what was going on then, but I got to spend this time with my, my daughter. I only have a few minutes left, but 
I was sitting there holding her and she had, I don't know, she was nine months, six months. And I had this unbelievable love. And I've never felt that for any human being ever. And I cannot, you know, there's no other way. It's just some, something special between a parent and their child. And it hit me. And I just thought to myself, I'm going to take care of this little girl no matter what. I don't care if she ends up on the serial killer podcast as the, you know, topic. I don't care. I'm still going to love her, right, no matter what. And it's this overwhelming feeling. It's like, oh, my God. And I knew in that moment that, well, I didn't learn that. How did I, how did I get this? How did that, where did that come from? And it just suddenly dawned on me that, well, it's could only come from this power that they've been trying to tell me about, right? Turn our will and life over to the care, right? Over to the care of God as we understood him. And I began to understand there that there was something out there caring for me. And when I stopped long enough and started to look back at the results of this living sober and trying to do it, um, I saw that the mir- I could not dispute the miracles, right? I kept seeing these miracles happen, you know, and some were slowly, some of them quickly, but they, but they kept happening. And that's the one beauty about Alcoholics Anonymous these steps work whether you believe in them or not. You know, they work regardless. But it's very important. I had to, uh, I did, it was pounded into my head that this is not a program for people who need it. It's not a program for people who want it. It's a program for people who do it. You know, I, I have to put these actions and these steps into my life or I will not have the experience. Um, and that is one of the things that is, it's a constant reminder, right? There's a lot of cool things in AA. And today we're blessed with these amazing ability. We can go to meetings now because of the COVID. We can go to meetings 24-7, 365. Just log in, man, right in, the, in your underwear on the couch. <laughs> Spirituality coming at you 24-7. And it can feel like that's recovery. And I follow this trap all the time. I feel like because I'm reading the stuff and I'm, and I'm seeing the meetings and I'm going to the meetings and I'm reading the books or whatever that I'm doing it. And there's a difference. I can get so distracted with that that I'm not taking the steps, right? I'm not actually trying to connect because I think really what's happening for me in step two is I'm coming to believe, but I'm only coming to believe so that I can come to rely. If I don't, if I'm not able to do that, it's, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to last and I have to remember that the only way I'm going to get there is by going through the rest of the steps. And this really, we says, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. And I was not, you know, it just took me a long time um, to really get thorough with it and to do it um, with, with this desperation. You know, John said something yesterday that it, I can forget, you know, I've been around a long time and a lot of times I do these spiritual things because I'm inspired to. I want to be a better person and blah, blah, blah. And I want to grow and I want to have a better marriage and a better work and do, to do. And my wife and I are just have this amazing life together. We have this beautiful business we've made and our house and it's a lot of work, but it can be distracting. And I just get into this thing and, and I have to remember that the, the basic premise is this, um, 
I have to stop and I have to, to do the work and um, to, to get in there and let go. And, and my sponsor says something all the time. And um, he says, you know, come all the way in, sit all the way down, you know. And um, very early on, and I'm going to close with this, and I'll shut up. Um, I was sitting, I had a few, yeah, I had a few minutes, I had a few, I had a few months, and I was at this, uh, I was at this group of kids, and we were outside at this little impromptu meeting, and um, this was another spiritual experience that I had, but I was very unsure about you people, and coming in, and and I don't know, I can only just tell you that it was the voice of this power, but um, I was just having these doubts, and it just came in and said, you know, if you just keep coming here and doing this stuff, um, excuse me, it'll be okay. You know, it'll, it'll be okay. And uh, it was loud. It was, excuse me, so loud in my head that I thought, I looked around. Anybody hear that? And I heard it, and I just decided to believe it, right? And every, every belief I have is a decision one way or another. Sometimes it's conscious, sometimes it's unconscious. But I decided to believe in Alcoholics Anonymous and just to do it to the best of my ability. And thank God for a couple of spiritual principles, right? Your best is always good enough here in the spiritual world. No matter how bad your best may be, some of us, I mean, my best was bad. I'm telling you right now, I was 16. I just was not good at it, but I, I gave it my best and it worked and it changed. And I found this power that I try and rely on. And, um, and I hope that um, you do too. And I love all you guys and thank you so much for having me.